BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, it's been three years. Three years since Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven others perished in that helicopter crash in Calabasas. Uh, I don't know if you were on social media this morning, but uh, people uh, posting remembrances, talking about the fact that they can't believe that three years has passed. They can't believe how much time has passed. And uh, I guess the I guess life does that to us. You know, you look up. It's a terrible accident, a tragedy, even a death, even a death that isn't an accidental death. Like even, uh, you know, just on Saturday, last Saturday, Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City, passes away at the age of 93. And, you know, there's a day or two or three, and, you know, I find myself thinking about the Sean still, but, uh, you know, the world gets back to life, so to speak, and moves on. And those who I think were more connected to uh, the people who pass away continue and take a, a longer time grieving. But with Kobe Bryant, with celebrity accidents or celebrity deaths, I think it's an interesting study. I found myself sort of uh, thinking about what a blur it's been in the last three years. I was uh, at uh, Gill Coliseum on the morning of January the 26th, 2020, when that helicopter crashed in Calabasas, California, uh, carrying Co- Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven others. And uh, I can remember how surreal it was to be at the arena and be around two uh, women's basketball teams, uh, Oregon and Oregon State, who were planning to play a game that day. I was covering the game. Uh, there was uh, just a, uh, a distraction or a weirdness that was... Uh, permeating from the arena, and it was odd as Oregon took the uh, court to warm up, uh, and this is before any of us knew what had happened, um, that uh, Sabrina Ionescu was not on the court, and I noted that. And and then I remember being kind of on the concourse of Gill Coliseum near one of the concession stands, and I saw the report, I saw like a CNN report on one of the televisions that was there about a helicopter crash and then there was immediately speculation about who was in the accident, who was in the crash. Third anniversary, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I always think of an anniversary as a celebratory thing, but it is the third anniversary of Kobe Bryant's uh, death, his daughter Gigi, and uh, seven others. Kobe Bryant was 41 years old when that helicopter crash. And um, I can remember people on Twitter essentially saying that this thing was going to break Twitter. And I can remember the news reports as they first came out, uh, you know, on that day that were troubling and alarming and, and, uh, you know, people trying to figure out what happened, what went wrong, all the tributes that came afterwards. But I just remember the initial news reports on uh, January the 26th of that day coming out of Calabasas and people sort of lamenting, you know, what had what had happened or what went wrong, and it was, uh, you know, a lot of remembrances. I remember Sabrina Ionescu on the ESPN postgame uh, after that game talking about uh, Kobe Bryant's uh, death, and she played in that game. And, and, the, and the other thing about Sabrina was she not only played in the game, 
But I have to credit both teams, both Oregon and Oregon State, because before the game, when it became apparent that, you know, hey, th- there was a tragedy, and it was more than Kobe and his daughter that died. There were seven other people that died. And uh, the the basketball teams, the two teams, put the balls down. And they put the balls down on the court, and the court was silent. And both the teams went to center court and held hands and created a giant circle. And they just bowed their heads, and they prayed. And I can remember, and I took a picture of that, and I put it on my Instagram, and I tweeted it. And I can just remember how powerful that moment was because it transcended basketball and it was two teams that were eager to get on the court and beat each other. But uh, Sabrina Ionescu, after the game, uh, with uh, red eyes, bloodshot eyes, and puffy eyes, and after playing a basketball game, stood there in Good Gill Coliseum and signed autographs and posed for pictures with young girls who had come to the game. And it, and it, it will never leave me the class and the strength that she showed that day, because I know she was a lot closer to Kobe Bryant than the rest of us. Here was Sabrina after that game on January the 26, 2023 years World ago. World lost a legend, and you, of course, a very close friend in Kobe Bryant today. Can you talk about the emotions that you felt finding out just before the game and coming out here to finish? Um, I mean, everything I do, I do it for him, obviously. Um, really close friend, and uh, this season's for him. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you. Remember Sabrina's voice shaking, and obviously uh, we would find out in, in March of 2020 that there was a pandemic going on in that season that probably would have led the Oregon Ducks women's basketball program all the way to New Orleans in the Final Four. I was so confident they were going to the Final Four that I booked the tickets uh, right, like in December of that season. I, I was like, they're going. Like, they're going to go to the Portland Regional. They're going to win the Portland Regional. They're going to go on to New Orleans. Like, this is a foregone conclusion, and they look so good yeah, winning the Pac-12 championship, the Pac-12 tournament. Uh, but uh, I can just remember, you know, the first games that pa- that came after uh, the death of Kobe Bryant and the players coming out, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Steve Kerr, Kyrie Irving, LeBron, everybody talking about what Kobe Bryant meant to them three years ago today. Here's Paul George talking about Kobe. Yeah, I mean, he was my Michael Jordan. He was what everybody, every kid wanted to be here. Um, I started playing basketball because of Kobe. I credit everything and, and you know, aside from God-given talent, I credit everything else. Here is uh, Frank Vogel talking about Kobe Bryant. Well, he was the the most feared man in the league for an entire generation. And, um, you know, the influence is profound uh, league-wide, basketball community-wide, worldwide, uh, Lakers family, you know, wide. And, um, you know, his, his influence will be felt forever. Draymond Green of the Warriors talking about what Kobe uh, meant to him. I think in 2016 was probably the lowest point of my NBA career where I don't know what to do. And it just felt like my career was caving in on me to get that call. And he told me, he said, Draymond, 99% of the world is okay with mediocrity. Or worse, you're chasing something so much bigger that how do you ever expect anyone to understand it? And for me, that was all I needed to hear, especially coming from a guy that I've loved since I was a kid. 
Draymond Green there. Donovan Mitchell uh, then with the Utah Jazz talking about Kobe. It's crazy because that's something that's so routine for him and, and that family. You know, that's the, sim- that's the equivalent of us driving to work. I think Jay Williams said it best. We just cherish your loved ones. It can happen any any moment. You know, life is greater than anything. But on top of that, he wasn't just a basketball player. You know, I think that's what hits home. You know, so many people obviously remember him as what he'd done on the court, but who he was off the court, the person, the people he re- the people he touched without even knowing he touched. Um, I think that's one thing that really stands out. It transcended basketball, too. I can remember athletes across all sports talking about the impact that Kobe Bryant had on their careers. George Kittle, 49ers tight end. I wore the number 24 in high school, uh, like my freshman, sophomore year because of him. And I wore Kobe Bryant basketball shoes because of Kobe Bryant. Every time I laced up my basketball shoes, I felt like I had Kobe Bryant with me. I had a little part of him. I had his jumper. I had his fadeaway. The amount of hours I spent practicing that fadeaway from the corner. And I never made it, but I tried, and I always thought I was Kobe. So, like, I mean, he's he's an icon. Uh, He was a hero of mine. And the world's not a better place without him. Giannis uh, talked about what Kobe meant to his generation. You know, I may have grown up on Michael Jordan. You may have grown up on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Wilt Chamberlain. But Giannis grew up on Kobe. A lot of people in my age, I don't, and, you know, for us, he was, he was the Michael Jordan of our generation. Uh, he was one of those guys that, you know, gave back to the game so much, gave back to the players. Uh, a lot of people, when they're so great, they don't do that, you know. And uh, there was a quote that they said that talent is worthless if you're not willing to share it, right? And he was one of those guys that was sharing his talent. Talent is worthless if you're not willing to share it. And then came the celebration of life, of course, about a month later, as Sabrina Ionescu stepped onto the podium uh, and at the Staples Center and... And uh, I think she said it well. I ask each of you, every girl dad, every human here with a voice, a platform, and a heart, to not let his sun set. Shine for us, for our sport where he once did. Invest in us with the same passion and drive and respect and love as he did his own daughter. In the end, she was a sun just starting to rise, and God did she glow. May their light forever shine. Kobe and Gigi, I'll love you forever. Thank you. Three years later, I want to know, as you look back, a couple of questions that I've been thinking about today. What is Kobe Bryant's legacy three years later? Uh, And and what do you make of the accident three years ago and just the – it was a weird time in our history, in our sports history. Everything gets shut down in March of 2020, just two months after Kobe Bryant's helicopter uh, crashes. It really was about six weeks later that the NBA teams were pulled off the court and a pandemic hits and the focus uh, of the news cycle shifted dramatically. And, uh, and I'm glad that that memorial got to be held. I'm glad that Kobe and Gigi and the seven other people got you know to be remembered. But three years later, what do you make of all of that now? What did you learn from it? What is his legacy? Uh, 503-417-7575 is a phone number. we got a great show today. Haley Lewis will be joining us from NBC in Kansas City. She is all over the Chiefs and Bengals game. Former KEZI reporter Haley Lewis will be with us here in the 3 o'clock hour to talk about the Chiefs and the Bengals. She's been all over the Chiefs camp. Patrick Mahomes interviewing the players. Haley will be joining us. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll focus on the NFC. As Dieter Kurtenbach of the San Jose Mercury News, he is a columnist that covers the Niners. He'll talk Niners-Eagles 
Niners sitting down a couple of players in practice today, but Christian McCaffrey saying he's good to go. We'll start, though, with Kobe Bryant three years later. Um, what have we learned from it? 503-417-7575, and what is his legacy? You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I couldn't believe it was three years ago. Steven, does it seem like it was three years ago to you, Kobe Bryant, the helicopter crash? Three yeah. years ago today. It seems long. It seems like it's been so long, I feel like. Yeah. I was like, whoa. What uh, what just happened here? I saw all the remembrances, and uh, you know, and I and here's the other thing. I lost. I I don't know if this happened to you. I feel like my internal clock is off from the whole pandemic. Like I I don't know how much time has passed. It could have been a decade. It could have been 18 months. Like I, you know what I mean? Like just uh, you know, I I've lost uh, sort of the tethers of time uh, in this in this whole last couple of few years, and I think. You know, Kobe was at the start of this thing. Like, do you remember your initial reaction when you heard the news? And now when you look back on it, has has it shifted at all? Like his legacy and what you make of the accident? Yeah, it's just it's shocking, right? Like that was the that was my thought was just it's shocking that, you know, it's so young that this would happen. And then, you know, for me, like I just feel so bad um, that, you know, kids were involved. You know, I, I feel like that's just me as a parent. Like now that I'm a parent, and I see that it just that's the one that breaks my heart is this all these kids, you know, dying at a young age. So um, that was the big one for me. I, I think for as far as his legacy, you know, as as bad as this may sound, like it, I think it makes his legacy even better because it's just like now it's always thought of, well, you know, a lot of people don't want to say bad things about the dead, which is perfectly great. And I understand that. But, you know, for Kobe, like I think people now are recognizing him as the greatest of his generation when I don't know that he necessarily was ever the greatest of his generation, but because he's dead now, I think that he gets a little more credit for him on the court, which is, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I think he's, you know, he's one of the best players of all time. I think in a sad way, it does help his legacy a little bit on the court. Um, what, you know, I think that happens for a lot of people that pass away, especially at a younger age. Yeah. And I think too, I, my initial reaction was shock. And then I remember going into the, the, you know, I, I gotta be honest with you. Every time I see a helicopter now, I think of Kobe. Like, if, if I'm, you know, hanging out somewhere and a helicopter flies overhead, I kind of look up and I go, oh, is that safe? Is, you know, I don't know. Is somebody commuting? Is that an emergency helicopter? Like, I do think of Kobe Bryant when I see that. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575 is the number. Uh, let's start with Maurice in Portland. Maurice is going to lead us off. Maurice, what do you make of it? Hey, I just wanted to chime in on that. I, I'm glad that you brought this one up i learned from kobe's passing to be more appreciative of greatness and to not just be a fan i was always a big time fan of my team which was the blazers yeah. i really thought drexler was better than jordan growing up until you know we lost in that finals and uh it was the same with with kobe you know with kobe i i, I, I hated him and i i, I want to say it with respect though right as a fan as a, as a fan of your team and 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 he just hated his greatness. And when he passed, I really learned to be a lot more appreciative of the greatness of the players in the game, especially ones like Kobe. And uh, 
and just to be just appreciative of, of seeing, you know, these, these players in their prime go out there and give it their all. We'll never see another Kobe again. I mean, we'll never see another Jordan again. Kobe was as close as we can get to Jordan, but he was, you know, he was his own man too. But I just learned to be a lot more appreciative. And I, and I always, after Kobe retired, <laughs> after he retired, I loved him. You know, I was like, oh, thank God we don't have to watch him come up here and kill our team every year. And I really appreciate it more so what I've seen him do over the years. And he was more personable. You know, like when you watch him do an interview, you can relate to him more, you know. And yes. I just learned to be a lot more appreciative of uh, the players, you know, while they're playing. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way as you, Maurice, because I, I, I did not root for Kobe, uh, you know, the it, it, as a fan at any part of me. And as a media member, um, I did not see Kobe Bryant as the underdog, right? So I often was looking at the Blazers, uh, you know, trying to overcome the Lakers or whoever was playing against Kobe Bryant trying to, uh, you know, knock them off the throne, so to speak. But um, I did have a, be- a greater respect for him in retirement because – I saw him showing up to his daughter's games. I saw him talking about fatherhood, and I started to see a side a side of Kobe Bryant that I did not know existed. And uh, and I think you know that that went a long way with me because I have three daughters. Uh, Mark is in Portland. Mark, uh, what do you make three years later? Ah, it's depressing. I mean, every it seemed like uh, everything was going so well with the with the world, and 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 uh, that was right before COVID. It was like a week or two before COVID. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it always seems to me the small planes and the helicopters and the weather situation. I, you know, I hate to do the hindsight thing, but I've never, ever got on a small plane or a helicopter. I mean, commercial flights that, that you know, you don't ever hear uh, things like that happening. So it just was, it was really sad to hear it. And plus what one of your, Stephen, I think said about the kids, that, that just it, the news just kept getting worse as that story came out to the world, and it just it, you know it just kept, and it's I think you know since then it's been uh, you know just uh, you, you think about I, I always think about his kids and what his daughter would have became because she sounded like she was going to be another Sabrina, and, and uh, it's just a sad story. So I wanted to also call in and give you a good story from today's date, and yeah. that would be. January 26th, Super Bowl 10, when Lynn Swan made four of the greatest catches <laughs> ever. Just, I want to say hi to all the Dallas Cowboy fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're now trolling the Cowboy fans. Hey, Mark, well, it's a good before... week to troll them. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. Uh, they're down. They're down. You're kicking them when they're down. Uh, let's go to Scott, who is in Garden Home, wants to talk Kobe three years later. Scott, go ahead. Hey, John. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, when you were talking about seeing the helicopter, uh, my mind went back to how long it took me to stop thinking about 9-11 when I saw, you know, a, a passenger plane flying overhead all the time. So I was never really a Kobe fan, but I sure as heck respected the guy. Um, and I got to throw a shout out to my man, Damian Lillard. Uh, yeah. I teach his son in, uh, in his son's school in P.E., Nice. And, uh, man, he was shooting the lights out. It's always a great time to have him represent our city. So I thought I would just share that. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. There you go, 60 points for Lillard last night. Made 60 look pretty easy. Very efficient 60 points on 29 shots, nine made free throws. Um, we're going to get to Lillard later in the show because um, I have a theory 
on Damian Lillard and what we're about to see here in the next few games. I bet you have a theory as well. Uh, Peter Sampson, uh, anybody else want to chime in? Kobe, three years later, how you how you sort of frame it now? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> time is a funny thing. It, it feels like it was just yesterday. I, I could still, if I close my eyes, I can picture exactly where I was, uh, you know, what was on TV as I'm scrolling on my phone and kind of getting the rumors. I mean, it was just uh, it was just shocking. It was a Sunday, I believe. And, uh, yes. yeah, but at the same time, it feels like it was, you know, if you had told me it was 10 years ago, I, w- I would believe it because everything just went crazy right after that. And Kobe's an interesting case. I mean, I, I agree with Steven that uh, his early death, tragic, but uh, I think it did help his legacy. But, I mean, Kobe Kobe's a complicated guy, and he's an interesting guy, and I don't think we should deny, you know, the, the bad things that he allegedly yeah. did. Yeah. But that doesn't – he really seemed to – I don't want to see. He never publicly came out and said that he had remorse, but his actions sort of showed that he did. You know what I mean? Sort of like like John Lennon, kind of a bad dude, kind of tried to make up for it at the end and then died early. Kobe Bryant, similar in that regard. And so I try not to hate too much. I loved to hate Kobe Bryant just on the court as a player. There was a love there because he was a villain, but a complicated guy and gone too soon. Yeah, to Peter's point. On the court, there were, you know, there's this hate, but in a good way, right? Because he was so good. But off the court, I think you're right. Like he did mature as he got older, right? Like I feel like he was very immature, um, even at the start of his career. You know, when, think about when him and Shaq were beefing. Like he didn't want to play with Shaq because he wanted to be the guy. And then by the end, after the retirement, like people are saying, like we all kind of rooted for Kobe. We all kind of liked him. So again, really complicated guy. Um, for all the stuff off the court, which I, you know, I, I will agree with you. Like, I don't like that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't like Kobe yeah. for that reason. Uh, but on the court, like, you can't argue how good he was. It felt like there was about a day of uh, mourning. And then I can remember that Monday. Uh, we kind of got through the Monday show talking about how sad it was and all that. And then it was about, it was late in the show, maybe hour three. And then, and then it really picked up the following day where, it became evident that his his legacy was complex because peep, some people who initially didn't feel comfortable coming out and saying, "Hey, I, you know, I didn't like him, and I didn't like the fact that he was accused of of sex assault, and I don't like the fact that he settled that case." It, it was a lot of people then going, um, "You know what? Uh, th- this guy's legacy is it's not so simple." It, and Peter said it, I think, really well. That is just a really complex legacy because he did things and was accused of things that nobody should be okay with. It, but in in the end, too, we saw him as a full person, a dad, a husband, and you know, a former player. And I kind of wonder what Kobe, you know, ten years later, if he had lived instead of being in that helicopter, what he would have gone on to do. I don't know. Um, here's here's Shaq talking about. Uh, when he gained respect for Kobe. The day I gained, the day Kobe gained my respect was the guys were complaining. I said, Shaq, Kobe's not passing the ball. I said, I'll talk to him. I said, Kobe, there's no I in team. And Kobe said, I know, but there's an in me in that motherfucker. <laughs> so I went back. <laughs> There it is, Shaq at his memorial, uh, at his celebration of life. Uh, Coming up, we're going to Kansas City. Why not? Uh, The Bengals and Chiefs 
are going to be playing Haley Lewis from formerly of KEZI in Eugene is now working at the NBC affiliate in Kansas City, KSHB. She's covering the Chiefs. She joins us next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, Joe Burrow and the Bengals. What's going to happen there? What I wanted to do on today's show uh, is I wanted to go where the story is. Haley Lewis uh, works at the NBC affiliate in Kansas City, KSHB, formerly of KEZI in Eugene. You may remember Haley from her time in Eugene. She's joining us now. How are you, Haley? Hey, I'm doing good. Just, you know, running around with the madness that is following Patrick Mahomes. I'm on ankle watch all week, so it's pretty thrilling. (laughs) Give us an idea. Like uh, those morning meetings that you have, you know, like uh, they, they just say, Haley, you got the ankle, or how does that go down? No, I, I, I kid you not. I'm literally on ankle watch. That is what my segment was called on my hits today. <laughs> I'm in there. You know, we're asking Patrick Mahomes these just rhetorical questions and, and just repetitive things about how's your ankle? How's, how many ways can you ask the ankle question? And then. Finally, we start talking to him, and I'm like, did you see all the videos of yourself on Twitter? And he's like, yeah, I I don't know how many people are watching me walk and tweeting about me walking. I really don't know what you think you can gain from seeing me walk up and down a few stairs at a presser. But, I mean, it's just, it's riveting news here. Uh, Happy to say he can climb the, the podium stairs and get back down just safely. Give us an idea, because you're around him and the other players often, like just sort of the mood. Are they loose? Are they tense? Um, you know, do they seem concerned, a little uptight as we as they move into the AFC title game? Yeah, you know, I think going into this week, the mood was a little anxious. You, you see how the Bengals did against the Bills, and the Chiefs shirt, you know, they didn't want the Bills either. But after watching how they handled um, or watching how the Bengals handled the Bills, they definitely didn't want to see Cincy again. And, and with the history they have, you know, three games in one year, always a three-point loss. I think the mood going into it at first was kind of like, okay, now we're going up against the bully. You know, are they going to take our lunch money again? And then this week it seemed really relaxed at practice. The guys are having fun. They're having way more fun than they definitely did down the stretch during the regular season. And in the locker room, it's, it's all high spirits. And if they're acting, they're doing a great job. Uh, but I would say that people are starting to get more confident now that they know Mahomes is doing pretty darn well. And, and if anything, he's shown that his acting skills are phenomenal or he really is fine. So I would say that the mood and the spirits are high because the likelihood of one team taking down Patrick Mahomes four times in a row consecutively, it, it's unlikely, but it doesn't mean that they're taking it lightly. All right, if, if Patrick Mahomes can't go, it's an obvious uh, competitive advantage to the Bengals, but how much confidence does this team have in the backup? <laughs> I mean, I don't even like to say this. Like, I don't even want to speak it. But uh, I was actually talking with Chad Henney, who's their backup, just just actually yesterday in the locker room and saying, you know, how confident are you going into this one? How are you feeling? And the guy's been around since 2018, right? So he's been here for all the AFC championships behind Mahomes and, and getting to, you know, he's 37 years old. 
it's kind of, we jokingly say they might have to go back to that, like, Alex Smith playbook of Andy Reid's, right? But I think the team is confident. In fact, I mean, he watched it last week, right? He took them 98 yards out all the way down. It took a while, but they got there eventually, you know, giving uh, Kelsey a couple throws and finally getting that touchdown throw in the end zone there. But I think they're confident in knowing that if Chad Henney has to step up, he can do it. He's done it before in a divisional game. I mean, back two seasons ago, Patrick had an injury. He came in. I think it was a head injury. He had a concussion. He comes in, finishes the divisional game against the Browns, and, and closes it out. Is it ideal against a team like the Bengals? Absolutely not. But I think if he has to go, the, the supporting cast has to prove that they, they are something without Patrick Mahomes at this point. Haley Lewis is our guest, NBC affiliate in Kansas City, formerly of KEZI in Eugene. By the way, do you miss Eugene, or what do you miss about Eugene most? <laughs> you know, I always love it because I didn't go to a Power 5 college, so every time the Oregon Ducks are doing anything, I always claim them as my own and, and love to cheer for them. But, gosh, I miss, I miss Eugene's weather. I miss the, the ability to just walk outside and go on a, a trail and – as I'm freezing here in the teams and wondering how it's going to snow on Sunday, yeah. I definitely miss the West Coast. Um, it's just the Pac-12 was such a fun, such such a fun conference to cover. You know, everything in the Midwest is just uh, the Big 12 and the Big 10 fighting it out with each other, and then the SEC acting like they own everything. So I miss it out there, that's for sure. Uh, let me ask you, I mean, this is a team that has got a couple of Super Bowl appearances with Patrick Mahomes. They won one already. Uh, what what would it mean to Mahomes and this franchise to get back to the Super Bowl and then to get back there and win? I mean, it's, it's unheard of, right? You see, this is the first NFL team to ever host their fifth consecutive AFC title game. He's taken over since 2018 as a starter. And now here they are continuing to put together success, him and Andy Reid, just like a pair made in heaven, apparently. But I think for this team to show that they're not just a trend, you know, that they're not just like some like lucky team that stuck around for five years, that they can actually turn into a dominating legacy, right? They want to be like that Patriots team with Tom Brady and Belichick. They want to show that they can continue to have that success because that's way more impressive than just going a couple of times. So I think this year it's so important that they get to the big game uh, rather than just falling out at the AFC title game again. And, and Mahomes, he's getting he's getting older, which is so weird to say. The guy's 27, and he's the oldest guy left in this thing, which is wild. Uh, but it's pretty it's pretty cool to see what they've been able to string together. So I think it's big. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, you have seen him evolve a little bit. When you say older, are you seeing a more mature calm what how has he changed <laughs> i think the i mean he was always mature right he was always like easy to talk to very very professional he's never going to be a guy who talks trash or or gets the sound bite that goes viral about him but i think the thing you've seen him mature in and it's kind of crazy to think that his game can actually evolve is the fact that he's he's learned to stay his maturity shows in the game where he takes the check down rather than chucking the ball down the field because he wants the big play, right? He sees he sees and thinks about, all right, it's not always about the Mahomes magic. It's about getting to the next play. It's about staying on the field. And, and he does such an incredible job of extending the play, but you see the maturity in his game where he also is more comfortable in the pocket, right, and trusting his offensive line because that was something that went terrible when they were taking on Tampa in the Super Bowl. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think that the fact that he's able to evolve only shows that at this young age he'll continue to do so, which is kind of scary to think of future. Haley Lewis, NBC affiliate in Kansas City. Uh, other keys to the game. You're look. You're on ankle watch, but what are what are other people in Kansas City talking about when it comes to the Bengals and what they do well? And what are the other keys to the game in your mind? I mean, the, the key to the game, I think, for the Chiefs is get to Joe Burrow. Right. That's something they weren't able to do in the AFC title game last year. It's something that he eluded uh, the Chiefs defense, and they were talking to the defensive coordinator today, Steve Spagnolo, and he referred to Joe Burrow as a guy who has like six eyeballs on his head, right? He can just always see what's coming. He always knows what's coming and, and he stays so calm, right? And he does very little little moves. Uh, he's very agile and can just easily evade being tackled. And I think that that was a huge problem. The last couple of losses don't really rely on Patrick Mahomes, not really his shoulders, but mainly the Chiefs' defense. So are they able to put pressure on Burrow? Are they able to combat and stop the secondary? Oh, my God, the Chiefs' secondary has got to be on their game because when you look at the wide receiver core that the Bengals are bringing into this one, it's daunting. So I think the biggest key is going to be slowing down Burrow and honestly keeping him off the field, right? I I know that's a really kind of lame and cliche way to say it, but keep Burrow on the bench. I, you know, I, I think it's going to be a fun game. I, 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 you know, the Chiefs obviously arrive with a reputation intact. If they don't win yeah. this game, Haley, how much soul searching do they do, or do they just go, "Hey, it it doesn't, it, it didn't work out. We come back next year, we regroup." Uh, you know, do they do they need to make an overhaul if they don't win? I gosh, it it stresses me to even think like that because I think that that's when they really have to look at themselves in the mirror. And and I think you're right. Steve Spagnuolo's defense has done phenomenal things, but as, we, as we've continued to see now over three years, it takes a long time for people to pick up the deep playbook that he has. And it takes so long down the stretch for them to get really flowing and, and doing so quickly in the defense. They have so many rookies that it's like, do you stick with that? Do you keep that going? Or like you said, do you overhaul that? Because that's what they did back in 2017, going in 2018. They overhauled everything. So yeah, I think that you would have to, right? You would have to identify those issues. And then you got Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator, who is up again for another head coaching position, and we'll see if he stays, right? Is that someone who you would take out and then bring in the quarterback coach, Matt Nagy, to take over as OC? I think if if they lose this weekend on Sunday, they have to make those changes, or or you can't even – I mean, I think there's going to be uproar from Chiefs Kingdom, but I definitely think that if you don't make those changes, you're not putting one foot in front of the other and actually addressing the issue in front of you. This this longevity of championships won't last. Haley Lewis from NBC in Kansas City. All right, stay on that ankle. Uh, you know, keep on that ankle. And <laughs> do you think Mahomes is is gonna? Do you think it's a non-factor for the game? Like, what where are you leaning right now? Uh, the the one thing that I I'm concerned about. Do I think he'll have adrenaline pumping and do a phenomenal job and go out there and be able to perform to his full extent? I think so. I'm concerned about the offensive line protecting him. That's the thing that scares me, right, is those, those plays where he could get hurt, re-injure it on the field, and then it doesn't matter what treatment he did leading up to it. If you get hurt again on the field, it's not going to matter. So that's my biggest fear of him re-injuring it or, I mean, getting injured at all, right? So it's just – 
I, I can't I can't really describe it better than just to say I'm uncomfortable going into this game, and I'm mm-hmm. glad I don't have to step on the field. There you go. Not on the field. Uh, get on the news, though. I know you got a show to do. Haley Lewis, thank you. I know a lot of people in the state of Oregon remember you from your time covering sports here, and uh, we wish you well. Hey, I appreciate that. And if I get any great solo pictures of Mahomes' ankle, I'll make sure I send them right away. Make sure you get them right over. All right, Haley Lewis, there she is, formerly of KEZI. Uh, guys, I want to go around the room after hearing Haley talk about Mahomes and his ankle. Do you feel uh, better or worse about the Chiefs' prognosis for this game? Steven? I feel better. I feel better with it. I, I mean, all reports, and Katie Haley uh, kind of reiterated this, like, it's going to be a problem, yeah, and it's, it, you know, it's not 100%, but he's moving around, and he's not in the injury report. I think, I think he's starting to lean Chiefs a lot more uh, as time goes on. I think he's going to be probably not 100%, not not you know, vintage Mahomes where he's running around out of the pocket all the time, but I think he can make a play or two out of the pocket just to keep Cincinnati on their toes. I'm, I'm starting to believe Mahomes. I think, you know, what I'm gathering from her is, uh, A, this is a big story, and, you know, she's on the ankle, so to speak, the beat of the ankle, and watching that. But the, the questions for the Chiefs, you know, there were other questions about this team prior to Mahomes injuring his ankle. And, and I think, you know, we saw them make a change on offense, and Tyreek Hill's not on this team, but they have missed a beat offensively all season. They were fantastic. But... Uh, defensively, uh, can Joe Burrow and the Bengals move the ball on him? And and then there becomes the question: like, there's a little trash talking going on in the series. Like, I, you know, one of the Chiefs linebackers says he's not worried about the Bengals at all today. I don't know if that's a good thing to say in front of a game against Joe Burrow and the Bengals. And, and the but he Bengals says he's not are, worried. And the Bengals are calling, calling Arrowhead Burrowhead. Yeah, like there there are some these teams do not like each other and they both feel like they are, uh, you know, the top dog in the AFC. So it's going to be an exciting game. I can't wait for this game. Uh, I'm still leaning Bengals until I see Patrick Mahomes run around out of the pocket, jump, be parallel to the ground and throw the ball 40 yards down the field like he always does. Uh, I think the Bengals uh, have a leg up in this one. Our big splash is coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll go to the 49ers-Eagles game as Dieter Kurtenbach of the San Jose Mercury News will be joining us to tell us what's going on in 49er camp. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. On tomorrow's show, how about this? Dennis Erickson, former Oregon State coach, will be joining us tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Make an appointment. Dennis Erickson wants on the show. We'll talk Jonathan Smith. We'll talk Pac-12. We'll talk quarterbacks. We'll talk about his regrets and his successes and his triumphs. I'll ask him who he thinks is going to win the Super Bowl, who's going to the Super Bowl, and then who's going to win it. Dennis Erickson tomorrow, 4 o'clock. Make an appointment right here. Uh, guys, uh, we've talked a little bit about Kobe Bryant, third anniversary of the death of Kobe and his daughter and three others. We've talked uh, with Haley Lewis about the Chiefs and the Bengals. Uh, we are uh, obviously going to talk 49ers-Eagles later in the show, but uh, we got to talk about Damian Lillard's 60-point effort. What was your immediate reaction? i got to know from you guys, but here's mine. The other day when Patrick Beverly went dame time and pretended like the watch was broken, we talked about it on this show. 
What was Damian Lillard's reaction going to be? He's pissed off. We saw it uh, in the game before this last one. I think we saw it again last night. He just gets a certain focus when uh, he has that extra bit of motivation. I think he's going to go on one of these runs where he scores 35-plus in like, you know, five or six games or has a couple of 50-point games. It's just, it looked that way. And the thing about the performance was comes on 29 shots. It's not like it was a volume performance. He, he shot 70-plus percent from the field, 9 of 10 free throws, 9 threes, uh, really maybe one of the best performances that I have ever witnessed and seen, and certainly the best 60-point performance in NBA, or the most efficient 60-point performance in NBA history. Your immediate reaction. I was not surprised he went nuts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Patrick Beverly mocked him in the bubble, too. It's really funny because uh, Stephen and I were just having the conversation a few days ago about, you know, Bubble Dame probably not walking through that door. Well, maybe he is because last time that Patrick Beverly mocked him when he was a member of the Clippers, Dame went crazy, ended up being winning the bubble MVP. Here it is, the exact same thing. And what's wild is... He could have had more. Watching that game, it was so efficient. It was so within the flow of the offense. He played the right way over the last like three minutes of that game. He knew it was in hand. He did not hunt for shots. He did not look for the ball. Uh, at the very end, he finally got one possession. If he wanted to, I think he could have got 65, maybe even 70 if he was just going to jack it up Devin Booker style. But he did it all smoothly, efficiently, and he played the game the right way. Yeah, my initial thought was just how awesome it was, right? You know, 29 shots to get 60 points is insane. It's insane efficiency. But at the same time, I thought, man, it's sad that the Blazers need every one of these 60 points. Like, even him dominating the game and them scoring so much, the game was was not in doubt. Like, they needed Dame to continue playing. You know, they could have probably taken him out with maybe two minutes left. But, like, for 46 minutes, that was a real game, and Utah was right in it with them. So, you know, it's just the same thing over and over. Like, Dame has to do everything for this franchise to win ball games, but you know he just reiterates why he is uh, the number one scorer in all of Blazer history. And talking about bubble Dame, as uh, Peter was saying, you know back in the bubble, Patrick Beverly did troll him. Two games later, Dame dropped sixty-one on the Mavs. Then it was uh, this year. Two games later, Dame dropped sixty on the Jazz again. Uh, right now, so it's not a coincidence that Patrick Beverly trolls him and then uh, Dame goes off. Should the Blazers just get Patrick Beverly on a contract, have him show up to practice and mock Dame? Is that the secret to success here? And how how sustainable is this? Because we all know one player, you know, we've seen him try to do this before. He puts the team on his back, and then he, you know, he has six or eight really good games. He goes on a stretch where he plays lights out. But in the end, he's still surrounded by uh, some marginal players and some holes on the roster. The worrisome part for me is is you're right on that, is that we've seen this before and you know, we we're talking about Kobe Bryant before. You know, think about the first game the Lakers played was against the Blazers. Dame went off in that game, and that was about peak Damian Lillard right before the bubble where he was just dominating the NBA. And the problem with that is, is that if he's gonna go so hard right now, it's gonna affect him at the end of the season. What the Blazers really need him most in the playoffs. And we even saw when the Blazers make that Western Conference Finals run, Dame kind of died down a little bit towards the end of that run, they needed a lot more help, and they didn't really necessarily get it. I do worry about that, that Dame has to do so much for the team right now that later on in the season it's going to affect his play. But 
The problem is, is they need Dame to be scoring, you know, 35, 40 points a night just to win ball games against the Utah Jazz. So it's one of those, uh, you know, it's rocking a hard place right there with the Blazers. This brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Damian Lillard goes for 60 and then calls it simple afterwards. I'll let him have the final words on this. I, I don't know. I think anytime you score 60 points, it's special. But I think this one, I just felt like, uh, you know, it came pretty simple. Uh, you know, I thought I played the game as it should have been played. I knew it was a, a game that we needed to win. So I came out with the mentality to attack and be aggressive. Um, you know, but it wasn't like I just came out on fire. You know, it wasn't one of those games. I just think uh, it was just different because it felt so simple. You know, I didn't feel like I just went out there and just went after it. You know, it was like taking what they gave me. You know, I was just putting energy into the right places. You know, I felt like I was making the right pa- the right passes. I was attacking the gaps. They was in the drop defense. I was taking the threes. Um, if the paint looked open, I was attacking the paint. Uh, you know, it was, it was pretty simple. You know, I don't want to say it was easy because they, you know, they had some big bodies and some some long defenders uh, out there, but um, I think usually you know I get into a groove where I'm just going without you know making those simple plays. That team started to come after me sooner, and I think because I wasn't just like you know I was kicking it ahead, I was swinging it, so it was it didn't feel like they came after me until the very end. There it is, uh, Damian Lillard on his 60-point game. Uh, very simple performance, an impressive performance. Uh, we'll have Punch It Audio coming up. Uh, again, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to the Philadelphia Eagles-San Francisco 49ers game. We'll talk about that matchup, but uh, we'll kick it around here as the 4 o'clock hour approaches. Uh, one hour in the books, two ahead. We're going to have some fun with this. And, uh, you know, I promised you NFL flavor in the next couple days. We'll get it. I mentioned earlier Dennis Erickson on tomorrow's show. I want to alert you to that because uh, he's been itching to get on the program. He's a great interview. We'll talk to uh, the former Oregon State, former Miami, former NFL coach Dennis Erickson tomorrow, right here at 4 o'clock tomorrow. All right, leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. I mentioned this today in print at johnconzano.com, but I want to double down. Like, last night, it was interesting because. Damian Lillard is is essentially going off like he like he does occasionally, but as it's unfolding, I don't know if this struck you guys, but it made me kind of sad. It made me sad that the pinnacle of Blazers basketball right now amounts to its star player showing us how great he is, reminding us that that, that time is fleeting and that a window for possible high high level success in Portland is still open and then it also just kind of reminds us that 
this franchise is nowhere near able to compete at a level that he can compete at. It's kind of a mixed blessing for me that I'm watching him go off and I'm going, this guy is as talented as anybody on a given night in the league. There, there are other players you would take first. If we say, all right, we're going to redraft the league and you have the number one pick, you're probably not picking Damian Lillard. But he's good enough to be on a team that plays deep in the playoffs. I'm not even saying championship. He's good enough to play on a team that could get to the Western Conference Finals if the roster's built around him. So the question is, before I get into Punch It Audio, the question is, did Neil Olshay screw this up so badly that the Blazers have no assets, they have no picks, they have no flexibility come trade deadline to fix this? Like, what happened in your mind in the last five years that led the Blazers on the path here where they have you know, essentially, I remember when Alex Rodriguez went to the Texas Rangers. Okay, he was A-Rod at shortstop. He was fantastic. He was hitting home runs left and right, and the Rangers were in last place. It It's not that bad because when you look at the standings, you know, you know, the Blazers may be down in the standings, but you go, okay, they're only like three and a half, four games out of being like in the four or five spot. So it's not dire, but I'm looking at the roster and I'm going, how, like, it's sad to me that they're in this position where they have a superstar, but the act around him is very mediocre. How did they get here? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Neil O'Shea completely butchered it, and this goes back uh, quite some ways. Uh, he, look, he knew LaMarcus Aldridge was going to leave, and he didn't get a single pick for him or a bench player or a bad contract back or anything. He had him lie to the Oregonian, and then he let him walk, and then went, what? I can't believe this. Even though everyone knew that he was going to leave, it came out that they knew he was going to leave. And the one thing I'll say that is not Neil O'Shea's fault is Wesley Matthews tore his Achilles. Because that was, prime Wesley Matthews is the perfect guard to play next to a guy like Damian Lillard. A defensive-minded, little bit of a bigger guard who can act as an outlet valve and shoot the three. But then after that, you have Neil O'Shea drafting, you know, what? Obviously, CJ McCollum, the year after Damian Lillard, paying him money. Guys like Alan Crabb, Will Barton. Look, you're finding value in the in the second round, but you're you're sort of making sure that those guys uh, can get their minutes and get their points. It makes you look good. And then as soon as they go to the other team or another team, what happens? They flame out because maybe they weren't exactly as good as they looked here. So Neil Shea looks good. You know, Alan Crabb, he earned that money. Well, it turns out that maybe he didn't, which takes us to 2016, when the Blazers actually, finally, for once, had some cap room, had something to work with. And what did Neil Shea want? Well, he wanted Hassan Whiteside. He wanted to pay Hassan Whiteside nearly $100 million. Couldn't do that. So he wanted to pay Chandler Parsons, who was on one leg, $100 million. And he couldn't. Yeah, so it's, just, it's a series of misfires it, after. It, yeah. And the summer of 16 was the worst of it, where they kind of went, with, there's nobody available. We're going to overpay for marginal talent and because, hey, they wanted an asset. Well, we can trade this guy. And then they never moved the players. Like, they overpaid for, you know, a bunch of guys, Evan Turner among them. And Myers Leonard got a bunch of money. And, and all of a sudden, it was just, I think they, they got caught up in just trying to be a playoff team. And, 
and Neil Olshay trying to get his own contract renewed. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It was it was job security for Neil Olshay. That's the play he made to the bitter end. Even when this thing obviously wasn't going to work, it was like, well, I need to oversee the rebuild. I think that's why he wanted to hire Chauncey Billups, a guy who never coached and gave him a five-year deal. Well, we can't leave him with no supervision. I've got to be the guy. Tell me how you really feel, Peter. I'm sorry. I'm fired up, baby. I, I love it. Uh, you had no, a nerve I mean, there. Yeah, you had I, a nerve. I mean, we, me and Peter look at each other when we want to talk. He raised his hand. He was ready to go. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, he's right on, too. Like, Old Shea really butchered this. And you know, Joe Cronin is trying to fix a big problem. And I think he's been doing a solid job so far. Uh, you can certainly criticize some of the moves he's made. You know, the CJ McCollum trade, I liked it. And it just didn't work out where the Blazers got a lottery pick because the Pelicans turned out to be better than we thought they would. Um, so that was unfortunate, but it was still the right decision to move off of those guys that they had. And I think they're in a better spot this year than they were a season ago, even at the start of it, when they had Norman Powell, Robert Covington. I think right now they're in a better spot. But you're right, John. Like It, it is hard because for how good Dame is, the team isn't going to be good enough to compete for a championship and they're trying to sell this as like you know a soft reset, and that's that's not possible in sports. I don't think a soft reset is ever possible. I think that they're just not saying it, but I think they really are planning for the future. They're just going to ride this Damian Lillard contract out, and they're going to build for the future. They're not going to trade Anthony Simons, not going to trade Shane Sharp, and basically they're going to let Dame play the rest of his career as long as he wants in Portland. Then after that, they're going to be building around Anthony Simons, Shaden Sharp, Jeremy Grant, and maybe even Nasir Little. And try to go from there. I, I just think that it, it's almost it's almost like Kobe. Back to Kobe again. How the Lakers wrote it out with Kobe with his contract. I think the Blazers are kind of doing that with Damian Lillard. Yeah. And the and meanwhile, you watch some teams that stripped everything down and did total rebuilds, who have reemerged at the top of the standings. Like that's the thing that's most frustrating for me. In in watching that performance last night, I'm going, okay, it's great, it's exciting. This is probably as good as it gets, but. Man, Sacramento and New Orleans and Memphis all went back to the bottom of the well and then reemerged with better teams. And so did the Clippers in some ways. And so did the Phoenix Suns in some ways. And Minnesota's in front of the Blazers. And so I think it's frustrating to me to kind of watch the, the, the franchise. You know, if the franchise has got a playbook, like a secret playbook in the vault at one center court, and we could crack the safe and open it up, I suspect that playbook says, just make the playoffs. These fans will renew. We're good if we just make the playoffs. Everybody's job contract gets renewed. Everybody's happy. We'll send Dame to the All-Star game. We make the playoffs. The renewals are fine. It's enough if we just make the playoffs. I kind of suspect that has been the plan all along, and it's damn frustrating for me. I'm not as mad as Peter is about it, but I'm disappointed. It kind of makes me sad when – Damian Lillard scores 60, I'm like, okay, that's one tent pole. Where's the other one? And, and, and how many years have we been saying, well, if they could only put enough talent around Damian Lillard? Because I think the legacy of Lillard, if we're being honest, is going to be great player, demonstrated rare loyalty, did uh, everything that, that fans probably could ask of a, a star player in today's NBA world. Um, and in exchange, the organization uh, really didn't ever put anybody around him to make to make uh, the best of what his talents were. I think it's going to be a waste in the end. No, I totally agree. And my whole thought process with the Blazers, I've said this numerous times. You know, I'm 35. I've never seen a championship parade. My my kid is now into the Blazers. He's eight. I just want one day. 
one championship parade that I can take my kid to. We can have fun and have that day. I'm not asking for multiple. I'm not asking for a dynasty. I just want one. And that, and it just feels like I'm with you, John. Like the Blazers playbook isn't necessarily to get to that level. It's to just make the playoffs and be happy that way. And I'm with you. It's frustrating. And and look, as a media member, you know, people tell me, oh, your media, like, you don't care like a fan. It's true. I don't live and diet like a fan. But I look around at the fans and, and I've seen, you know, I've been here since 2002 and I've seen people live and die with the franchise just in that span. And, and you know, Anna grew up here sitting on the carpet of her of her living room floor listening to Bill Shonley and the horns at the beginning of the broadcast. And, you know, it, it struck me very early uh, in my relationship with Anna that, like, she was almost like a Cubs fan in that she expected, even when things were going well, that it wasn't, you know, oh, it's just a matter of time, you know, it, because you've lived through it. And I really would love the state of Oregon to get another parade. Like Bill Shonley said, in his lifetime, he wanted another parade. He just wanted one more parade, like they better hurry up. You know, it happened in 1977. I just want one more time for this city to have an opportunity to to have a moment like that. Five seconds to go. The Hornet leading 109 to 107. Three will inbound. Here we go. The inbound of McGinnis. Drive, stop, pump, shoot, short, no goal. One more time. Can we run that back? And look, it puts a lot of pressure on Joe Cronin. He's inheriting this thing, and I do believe it was infected by a couple of things. One, I think, you know, for Paul Allen, for all of Paul Allen's sins, one of the great things that he wanted to do is he wanted to win, and he had the money to do it, and he would be a taxpayer. There were years in which he paid $20 million in luxury tax. They had the highest payroll in the league in 2002, 2003. He was trying to go for it. But in 2002, 2003, they were an eight seed. He was paying $20 million in luxury tax to be the eight seed in the playoffs. It's, it's a bad investment. You can't do that. It's not sustainable. It's insanity. But I think for all of his sins, they had an owner that wanted to win. I just think for whatever reason... Maybe he got paranoid. Maybe he just lost his way. He went through this stretch where, you know, they went from Bob Witsit to Steve Patterson to John Nash to Rich Cho to Tom Penn and Kevin Pritchard, and they were cycling through GMs. It was like six GMs in ten years. And then he settles on Neil Olshay, who, frankly, you know, stabilized things, but was in it for himself. I mean, it reminded me an awful lot of Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner, in that most of his moves seem designed not for the franchise, not for the greater good, not to serve the conference members or to serve the organization, but to serve himself and his own job security. It was very eerily similar. 
And maybe there's a lot of that going on in the Fortune 500 world, but it shouldn't happen with an NBA franchise. I got the bald-faced truth. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love that song. I love when that song plays. It reminds me of, uh, I'm going to say it's 1997, 96, 97. That song probably came out in 1995, if I'm guessing correctly. It always takes me back to a time and a place. How close am I? I think that song came out in 95, 96. 96? It's 1996 and 97 was kind of when it was super big. You're right on the money. I can remember where I was. I was uh, down by the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. I was working at the Santa Cruz Sentinel covering sports. And when you're covering sports in Santa Cruz, California, let me tell you, you are covering beach soccer. You are covering the banana slogs of UC Santa Cruz. I was uh, out at girls' water polo games asking them, you know, hey, uh, uh, tell me how tough it was out there in the pool today. Uh, and then writing stories about it and uh, walking down Pacific uh, Avenue, uh, the main boulevard with all the hippies in Santa Cruz. Anna, those were good times. You know, I learned something there. What did you learn? I'm curious because I know that, you know, people who are trying to build their careers often feel like they're stuck working in a place that they don't want to work yeah. or they're doing what they don't want to be doing. Like when you started out, and had aspirations of becoming a sports journalist covering, like, Frisbee golf in Santa Cruz probably wasn't what you had in mind. No, and I wasn't covering Frisbee golf, okay, first of all. That's beneath me. No, okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I was uh, – uh, here's the thing. I, I never had that feeling at any stop that the stuff I was covering was beneath me it, because I was grateful – a, to have a job and have an audience. Uh, you know, my first job, I was at, like, a newspaper had, like, 10,000 circulation, small daily. Santa Cruz was my second job. There were, like, 35 or 40,000 people reading me all of a sudden. All right, that's a lot of people for me, mm -hmm. the, the circulation. And so, but what I, I knew I was getting as much out of the experience as, as, you know, I needed because I was learning to write. And I was learning to take a sport like girls' water polo or beach soccer and make it interesting to a larger audience, which is, uh, it takes some work to do that. Like, you know, you anybody can go cover an NFL playoff game. There's a built-in audience for it. Mm -hmm. But when you are literally going, uh, you know, hey, I want to go, uh, I'm going to go cover, like, the, I remember that, that that summer that that song came out, um, one of the surfing companies offered a million-dollar prize for the surfer who could surf the biggest wave. And... Not far from Santa Cruz, like Santa Cruz has great surfing, has that cold weather surfing, that cold water. Those guys are insane. But there was a place called Mavericks, mm -hmm. and there have been documentaries made about the waves at Maverick and how big they are. Those guys were certifiably insane. They had a death <laughs> wish. But I remember going out and writing about them and covering it. And mm -hmm. it's just people. You're just writing about people. And I had a blast doing it. Like I was never at any point there was I going, oh, I wish I was covering the NFL. But every once in a while, they would send me to an NFL game. Because you're in Santa Cruz, you're not that far from the Bay Area, like mm -hmm. San, San Francisco, whatever. So you get to go cover like four Niner games a year. Mm -hmm. And then you got a taste of it. So you got enough of that. But then the next day I'd be covering girls' water polo or a Little League game or whatever. But uh, the people there were groovy. 
Mm-hmm. Santa Cruz, you know, people will say Portland or Eugene. They'll say or or Berkeley. They'll say, oh, those are hippie places. You know, they're oh, what's going on with the Birkenstocks and all that. No, Santa Cruz has like the trademark on hippiness. <laughs> Groovy people. Interesting people, a lot of characters, great news town, mm-hmm. always something going on. Interesting. Yeah. And I remember, like, there were even characters in the newsroom. We had, like, our, our news editor who, uh, I was in sports, of course, but the news editor was this guy they called Johnny Mac. Mm-hmm. Johnny Mac only had one foot. One foot. One foot. Johnny Mac would be hobbling around and had, like, a peg leg. Had, and, <laughs> and, and he would be hop, hobbling around the newsroom <laughs> and uh, come to find out, that Johnny Mac at one point had been homeless, and uh-huh. apparently he got frostbite on his foot, and he wow. lost his foot to frostbite. Wow. That's the story of Johnny Mac and the newsroom. But, but he had seen it all. Yeah. But you'd be in the newsroom. It'd be like 11:30 at night. You know, I'm finishing up a sports story. Deadline's like, you know, 11:45. Then the presses are gonna run and all this. And you hear the scanner, you know, police mm-hmm. scanner go off, and they'd say, uh, we got a report of a disturbance. Uh, uh, someone in a station wagon driving down Pacific Avenue throwing donuts at homeless people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, it was that kind of town, you know? And I'll never forget, too, there was one night. This is kind of a not-safe-for-work story, but I'm going to I'm gonna make it safe for work. Hope you're not at work. Um, there was somebody who apparently had gone to the ER because they had gotten a vacuum cleaner stuck on some appendage of their body. Oh, boy. Their arm, right? Yes. Yeah. And ended up in the ER over it. That came over the scanner. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody flinched. Wow. Everybody was just like, okay, it's Santa Cruz. Yeah. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the party. But I learned a lot there. And then my next job was covering Indiana basketball and Bobby Knight, Notre Dame football and Purdue football. And so I got kind of, you know, I got thrown into a different direction. You, learn, you have to learn something at every stop. That's mm-hmm. what I would tell anybody, any job, any trajectory. Learn something from where you're at. Don't bitch and moan about where you are. Oh, I, w- I should be at a bigger paper. I should be at a bigger company. I should be making more money. Don't. If you do that, you're taking away from the experience that you could gain in the position that you're in. Like have aspirations, you know, have goals and totally. work toward them. But I would gamble to say that some of the skills that you acquired while covering those like niche sports in Santa Cruz – um, uh, still apply to the writing that you do today, or the you know the reporting that you do today. Yeah, and there were uh, I mean there was there was just bizarre things that happened in in that town. Like Pete Newell, the legendary coach who won a national championship at Cal in 1959, coaching the uh, Bears to the NCAA title. His son Pete Newell Jr. was the uh, boys' high school varsity coach at Santa Cruz High School, hmm. and so. I had all of a sudden I had access to Pete Newell Sr. as a guy covering high school basketball, you know, and so I would I had these phone conversations and this introduction to him, which came in like look, it came in, it was invaluable to me because my next stop was again covering IU basketball and Bobby Knight, who is Bobby Knight's mentor. The answer is Pete Newell Sr. Hmm. And so when I go to cover Bobby Knight, Pete Newell says, "Here's everything you need to know about covering Bobby Knight." I got this primer that nobody else had and also an introduction because Pete Newell Sr. called Bobby Knight and said, this guy's coming from Santa Cruz. He's young. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's covering college basketball. He's going to be, be a beat reporter covering your team. And uh, he says, I told him when he gets into the first news conference, he's supposed to ask you, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? 
and then that way Knight would know who I was. And I'd had the <laughs> blessing of the Pope, Pete Newell. So I get into this news conference. It's packed. It's Big Ten Media Day in Chicago. I get the microphone. I'm nervous. I'm at the United Center. And uh, I say, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I am uh, John Canzano. I am working at the uh, Fort Wayne News Sentinel. Coach, uh, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? And uh, Bobby Knight looked at me, and he lit up, and he said, I never expected to come here and get such a good goddamn question. Like, <laughs> did you come up with that question yourself? You couldn't have come up with that question. And he went on and on and on <laughs> about how no media member could have ever dreamed up that question. Must have been planted with me. And then he answered it, and, you know, our our friendship lasted about three hours because then the first time I wrote something negative about him, he, he cursed me and walked out of the room. So you were in this I was, I was back on the naughty <laughs> list. But, yeah, you got to get something out of every experience, I think. Uh-huh, for sure. People say that, but you actually have to apply it. And I, and I get what you're saying about ambition, but I encountered coworkers along the way at those small papers who, you know, the editor would say, we need someone to cover the Little League All-Star game. Right. And they didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And they pissed and moaned about it. Mm-hmm. And, or they didn't want to cover girls' basketball. Mm-hmm. They were there to cover the, I want to cover the, the Warriors. They have their training camp. Why can't I go cover the Warriors? And, <laughs> and I'd be like, no, you need to learn how to tell a story. Right. That's where you learn how to tell a story. Right. Go cover something that nobody cares about and make people care about it. That's, you know, go to UC Santa Cruz campus. Start asking some hard questions. You know, the banana, fighting banana slugs. <laughs> In a community that doesn't really care about traditional sports. No. You know? No, they were leftover hippies just hanging out in Santa Cruz. They didn't know what year it was. It's a fine balance, though, having that ambition, knowing where you want to go eventually, but also being grateful and, you know, enriching yourself uh, into the experience that you're currently in. Being pa- yeah, yeah, it takes patience. Yeah. it's With anything, though. Like, I don't think... Like, yes, did I want to work right away, right out of college at the San Jose Mercury News covering the NFL? Of course. That was the paper I grew up reading. Of course I wanted to be there. But if somebody would have given me that job, I would have face-planted. Yeah. I didn't have the tools. Right. I needed to go cover some things and struggle and learn Mm -hmm. and get better. Mm -hmm. And then I got in that position, and I looked around, and I was like, you know what? I'm better than these people. I have more skills. I've seen a few things. Mm Mm-hmm. I can remember covering the Raiders and uh, John Ryan, who's a fantastic beat reporter, who's covering the Raiders. I was, you know, I was covering a Raiders game. He was covering the Raiders game, and the Raiders had a, uh, a linebacker named Greg Beekert, who was in a contract dispute with uh, Al Davis, very public dispute. It was last preseason game, and there was a lot of question about whether Beekert would get cut. And the Raiders, at the end of the game, were well aware that the media was going to try to get a quote from Beekert. Mm-hmm. So they roped it off. They roped off the area. I saw them starting to rope off the area, mm-hmm. and I slipped under the ropes, and I went out <laughs> under the field, and I found Greg Beekert on the field, like when he's shaking hands with the other players. Yeah. You know where I learned that? I learned that in Santa Cruz. I learned that in Indiana covering Bobby Knight and where they gave you no access. Like, you go make your access. Don't sit around waiting for the team to hand you, like, birdseed, you know. <laughs> and I walked off the field with Beekert, right? Yeah. The Raiders PR had it roped off, and as I walked, I glanced over. 
And John Ryan and the other beat reporters were standing behind the ropes, and Ryan was just shaking his head at me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just interviewing Baker, walking off the field, and the Raiders PR couldn't do anything about it. It's like covering wildfires for a local news reporter. You know, when there's wildfires that happen, there's always like an incident command, and they always want to be in control of the media and what, where you're allowed to go. And, yes, I understand that's a lot. It has a lot to do with safety. And they're trying to keep you from, you know, going somewhere that's too dangerous to cover a wildfire. But you learn pretty quickly, or if you're worth your salt, you learn that if you just always follow the rules and go where they tell you to go, you're never going to see flames. Yeah. Like I learned from the best news photographers that you got to go off the beaten path. you got to find your own way to go actually cover the fire and tell the story as it's happening, not from like 17 miles away where you just see little puffs of smoke in the distance. I, I have noticed that with inexperienced reporters. It, it's not even a rule. They're following what the entity they're covering wants them to do. Yes. It's not even a rule. Like, where's the rule? There's right. no law. Like, yeah. there's no law that says I can't go under the rope and go interview Greg Beaker. Like, right. security could tackle me if they want to, but there's no law. They're not going to throw me in jail for, you know, I have a media credential. I'm in the stadium. Yeah. So uh, I often have found that the universities get mad if you try to interview the players. on the, Like, Oregon and Oregon State do the same thing. They don't want you talking to their players on the field. And I'm like, cool, good rule. And I'm gonna. If I need to talk to him, though, I'm gonna talk to him. <laughs> so, right. like, you can you can take away my credential if you'd like, but that'll be a bigger issue for you. But I I don't work for you. Right. I work for the readers. Mm-hmm. And I think people I think people forget that. Well, and oftentimes forging your own path will obtain much better content because that conversation that you have with a player as they're walking off the field immediately after a game is going to be so much more so authentic. Much than even, you know, the conversation where they're now up on the press podium and everybody's watching them and it's being recorded. They're going to be much more reserved and um, probably less authentic. Yeah, you get real reaction yeah. on the field because the game's just ended. Yeah. Players are upset. that You know, they go have a cooling off period. Of course the team doesn't want you to interview them because mm-hmm. they're afraid they're going to say something they'll regret. That's not why I'm out there. I just want a, I want a uh, relatively authentic Mm-hmm. experience yeah. like hey what really happened out there don't wait 20 minutes to tell me and listen to your coach and hear him tell you what what do you think happened mm-hmm. Panay Sewell what do you think happened in that game you know how did you feel about the end of that game Justin Herbert how did you feel you know Jaquiz Rogers and you build rapport and trust with these players too and they see you they're not afraid right they don't they're not looking at you like oh you're gonna try to get me in trouble no they actually want to talk to you because they know you're the conduit to the to the fans mm-hmm. and you know, I think too many people, you know, again, I'll go back to this. I don't care what industry you're in. Uh, look around. And, it, and ambition is great. I had ambition. I wanted to get out of those newspapers in like two years. Mm-hmm. I got there. I said a two-year deal. I'm going to move to the next paper. But That's I, key, too. Don't yeah. stay too long. I also was looking around going, I need to get everything I can possibly get out of this experience. Best advice I can give. Leave it here. Get the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Yesterday's radio show, a really good interview with uh, Eric Sondheimer, the 
longtime prep writer at Los Angeles Times. He told us all about the circus around Bronny James. I wrote about it a little bit today at johnconzano.com. So to speak, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, the circus that would come along with Bronny, is it worth it if you're the University of Oregon? You can read it at johnconzano.com, among other things. I just emptied my notebook today into uh, into a post, and uh, you can check it out if you're a subscriber, a free subscriber, or a paid subscriber. Um, you, uh, it doesn't matter to me. Do what works for you. Uh, you. You got a taste of that today in your email inbox, and you can read it all at johnconzano.com. Anna, off the top of the show today, I mentioned that it's the three-year anniversary of the helicopter accident that claimed the lives of Kobe and Gianna Bryant and seven other people. You... Um, you had your first live shot as a news reporter in a helicopter, but I have noted, and I, I told people on air, that you won't go on a helicopter if, like, somebody says, hey, you guys want to go on a helicopter ride on vacation or something. You have you want no part of it. First of all, go back to the first helicopter ride you took as a reporter at K2. <laughs> well, I was uh, just 22 years old and starting as a reporter in my hometown, and that happened to be the day that uh, I was live on television for the first time at KETU. It was like a Friday afternoon. There was uh, no one in the newsroom, so it was what I call the warm body syndrome, where they just needed somebody to go up in the helicopter and cover a crash on the Ross Island Bridge that was jamming up Friday afternoon traffic. And um, I said to my news director, what's the worst that can happen? Come on, just, uh, you know. I can do this. Don't worry about it. It's all right. It's all right. And poor Gary Walker, who was like a real tall guy who would get real blotchy when he got nervous. He got real blotchy that afternoon and just said, all right, we'll let you do this. Don't embarrass us. Those were his uh, had encouraging you, had words. Had you been in a lot of helicopters? Had you had nope. experience with nope. this? Nope. Did nope. you know that you could get up there and not like be, uh, you know, get vertigo nope. or anything? Didn't know. No, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Just said, this is it. I can do this. I can just give me a shot. And uh, I hadn't been on air at all up until that point. I had been submitting stories and doing everything behind the scenes. But uh, I went up in the helicopter um, and started to talk about the crash and describing in detail the vehicles involved uh, in too much detail because I remember Gary getting on the two-way and yelling at me from the control booth saying the story is not really the crash itself and the details of the crash. The story is the impact to everyone else that's trying to get home mm. on a Friday afternoon. You need to talk about the traffic. <laughs> so that's right then modified what I was talking about and expanded out and said, oh, and look at the impact it's having. It was just so bad. Like, I was so, so bad. I don't know how it is that I wound up being on air for almost two decades in Portland after that first live shot because I was <laughs> hyperventilating. I couldn't get my words out. I was deer in the headlights. It was real bad. Okay, so let me ask you, if you go back and you have a chance to get in 22-year-old Anna Song's ear, do you tell her, hey, they're going to offer you this helicopter thing. Don't do it. You want your first time on air. No, I'd still do it. You'd still do it. I'd still do it. Because <laughs> in news, I mean, you know, in this industry, it's just baptism by fire. Like, you can go to college for broadcasting um, all you want, but really you have to get in a newsroom and you just have to do it. 
because there's no education that you can get in a classroom that will teach you what it's like to actually be on air and do it on air. Yeah. And the, you either love it or not. So. Let me Okay, now let's go fast forward to uh, you know, obviously there were some helicopter accidents in Portland. Oh yeah. That may have tainted you know the where I'm going with this, but you won't get in a helicopter today. You yeah, well, I mean, the helicopter accidents in Portland People who are around here will remember that it was a big deal when Portland started to have news helicopters buzzing around in the skies. And at the time, Channel 2 decided to up the ante and say, well, we're going to beat everybody else because we're going to have two helicopters. And so they waged this whole campaign about it being the power of two. Okay. The real story was that we owned one helicopter, Jet Ranger 2, and the other one, which was painted identically, um, was just a helicopter that we were leasing, and in its spare time, it was delivering Christmas trees. Like, that was its real job. And it crashed while delivering Christmas trees one year, so it was kind of embarrassing for the station because, fortunately, everybody was okay, but when it crashed doing that, all the other helicopters came around and were covering, you know, Channel 2's other helicopter that was on oh, the ground. No. So it was helicopter on helicopter news coverage. Mm, yeah. Uh. Yeah. All right. So, but now if we're on vacation or whatnot, like, you know, we've been in cities where they do, oh, it's a helicopter ride. Go up for an hour. Nope. Won't why? do it. Why? Won't why? do Tell it. the people why you won't do it. Um, because every helicopter pilot that I ever worked with um, who was a trained, you know, news helicopter pilot said that those outfits that you can take a tour, you know, in Hawaii, you know, go see the volcano from a helicopter, you don't know what their maintenance records are. You don't know what that pilot's records are, uh, what their flight safety record are, how many hours they have, you know. Um, there's just so many accidents and so many things that can go wrong and so much that you don't know about random tour helicopter outfits like that that they always told me never do that because you really are just taking your life into your own hands so so i won't do it won't and i tell people it. not to do it ever yeah because maintenance because pilots because you've covered too many things that have gone wrong yeah You've seen too much. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I don't know that that was necessarily the case with the Kobe Bryant crash. Like that pilot, based on everything that we've learned since that crash three years ago, you know, he had a good flight record, from what I recall from the reports, and the helicopter was, you know, um, maintained well. I'm not sure. I, I, I can't remember what the conditions were that day it was with bad. the flight. It was right? bad. Bad conditions. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was probably pilot air in bad conditions. Yeah. And uh, I got to admit, I said this earlier, like when I see a helicopter, I think about Kobe. Mm. I, st I have that association really? now. Yep. I, I bet I, a lot of people do. I see the helicopter and I go, oh, Kobe. Uh, I don't know. It, I don't know if that will ever leave me. Yeah. You know, like uh, it, it just, I make that association. Yeah. And and I uh, I, I don't know. I think... When I look back at it, there were some things that bothered me about the news coverage, too. Obviously, you had the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputies sharing photos they should not have been sharing of the wreckage. So wrong. Um, that was really bad. Um, I also felt like if if you had a family member that was one of the seven other people, like, 
I'm guilty of this. So is everybody else. There was so much attention on Kobe, and then secondarily Gianna. Right. And it was like seven other people. Right. You know, and that unfortunately is a fact that you know the a major celebrity died in the accident. The major celebrity gets the headline. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, can I ask you in your like I asked you one time, I said, hey, I want, I want to get a pilot's license. I want to fly a plane. <laughs> no, you're not. You went, no. No. You have, a, you have an allergy to it because? Same reason. I mean, I just covered so many crashes that, you know, like we, I'm not talking about commercial jetliners. Uh, those are few and far between. But like all of the small plane crashes um, that wind up on the news, you know, there's just so much that can go wrong. I mean, yeah. Not to say, like, it's a great hobby for lots of people. But I was like, we could have it. lunch in Sacramento. Like, let's just go. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, thank you. And it's... then I, I remember when I brought it up, like, it wasn't very many days later, somebody landed a plane, like, on I-5. Yeah. And you were like, See? you sent me a link. You were like, See? this is why. <laughs> uh, so along those lines, do you think your job in news, 20 years of covering house fires and accidents and whatever, has created anxiety in you or uh, and a, a, maybe an allergy to risk-taking? Oh, or I what? have a, a very defined heightened sense of fear around drownings, around... Uh, open windows, open, open windows open in the windows summer. I know that in one. In the summer, <laughs> yeah. uh, second-story windows, because, you know, gosh darn it, the first, like, 67-degree day, some toddlers falling out of a window, like, that's, like, clockwork, right? Um, yeah, drownings, house fires, kids falling out of windows, cars going off of bridges. Like, I have, you know, in all of our vehicles, I have one of those devices where yes. you can, like, break the window and cut a seat belt because I've seen that sort of thing happen too much in covering news. It's just, yeah, I have a, I wouldn't say, like, I walk around anxiety-ridden because I'm just not an anxious person I like that. I think our society is anxious. You and I have been talking about this lately. Yeah. Like, I've seen a lot of anxious people. I don't remember when I was a kid looking around and seeing all the grown-ups so stressed out. Yeah. Maybe they were, and they just weren't telling us as kids, but I feel like anxieties uh, it's running pretty high and strong right now among just people we know, and I don't know, like the number of people that are having hard time sleeping at night, and it's I just feel like people are kind of struggling with that right now. It's yeah. like the thing that, it's like an epidemic that nobody's talking about. Yeah, except we're talking about it. And we're talking about it. See, we're the first talking about anxiety. This is a new thing. It's anxiety. Uh, people are having it, and here's how. Uh, I think people are getting stressed out over little things now like they didn't used to. That's the difference. But why? It, it used to be big things, and now I think people are uh, focused on minutia and caught up on it. You know. And I saw like a TikTok video the other night, and they said, you should start every meeting by saying, we're all going to die, none of this matters. Okay, <laughs> and now let's begin the meeting. Like, Can you imagine the perspective that you get out of that? So you're going to start your show every day all like right, that every now? Every day, folks, welcome to the bald-faced truth. But let's just tell you, we're all going to die. Eventually. Okay? Eventually we all die, and none of this matters, but here we go. <laughs> Three hours of talking about it. But it takes the stress off of it, mm-hmm. you know? I'm not saying that that you shouldn't have healthy worry. Mm-hmm. And your your point about, okay, you, you because you cover the news, you see uh, the first you know heat wave of the spring yeah 
you see people who don't want to turn on their air conditioning opening second and third story windows and a toddler leans against the screen and falls out yes. because the screen's not secured. Yes. Um, so that's a, that's something that, as a public service announcement, we should talk about. Yeah. Um, also, it gets warm, and what happens? People go down to the river, uh-huh. and they jump in the river, yeah. and the water is ice cold in the spring because it's runoff from the mountains. Correct. And people drown. Correct. So, and usually there's alcohol involved, but yeah, not always. Alcohol, and you don't really know that that's freezing cold water you're jumping into, and you're going to go into shock. Yes. So those are good public service announcements, but simultaneously people shouldn't be losing sleep over it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like we're taking a lot of little things that are not like don't you know have a window open or make sure if your window's cracked that it, the screen is secure, no kid can get access to it. Uh, we're taking littler things and, and blowing them all up. I don't know about that. I mean, I think there are serious things happening in the world, right? There's like mass shootings and there's terrible, awful things happening in the world. But I think that if you're digesting news 24-7 and mm-hmm. you're internalizing it, then yes, you are going to walk around riddled with anxiety, wondering when the next bad thing is going to happen and whether it's going to happen to you and your family. Do you think social media is is a major factor in this it's a factor it's a factor but you know I I just I I feel for people because I I I feel their anxiety they're talking about it I I mean that's good I guess that they're talking about it but I think a lot of us are walking around in our heads uh, like with insomnia at night not sleeping and just trying to get to the next day all right Jason in Portland is holding he has a sports conundrum he wants us to solve we will do that after the break. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We solved some problems on this show. We do. Over the years, we've solved problems. We've, we've played matchmaker. We've helped people out. Jason in Portland has called in. He says he has a conundrum that he wants our help with. Jason, what's on your mind? Hey, John. So I'm a diehard Eagles fan. I travel to uh, the West Coast games whenever they come to the West Coast. And uh, my son has a basketball tournament. He's a seventh grader, and I'm the assistant of uh, assistant coach on the team. And they have a tournament in Salem. And their game is either at 1240 or 1.30 on Sunday. So I need, uh, I need some help from a, from a father, from a dad. Um, do I coach the game do i sit on the sideline and watch my 12 year old play his fourth game of the day or of the weekend or do i watch my eagles in the nfc championship game can i ask you you where where is the tournament being held it's in salem is it at the hoop uh it's uh it's actually at the uh, high school so uh i think south salem high school is where it's at but uh you know it's and my dad's a big 49ers fan i haven't even asked him if he's coming to watch his grandson play or is he going to watch the 49ers eagles game so uh i've been asking uh other people in my life uh for their advice and i've gotten you know 50 50 so i was wondering what what questions we have questions here anna do you have questions first of all are you saying that you normally travel to the Eagles games whenever they come to the West Coast? Is that what you said? Yeah, so I, so I'm, you know, we're my wife and I went down to Phoenix and watched them in week five and, you know, spent a few 
a few grand on the Eagles this year, so I'm I'm financially invested. Yeah. Um, you know, and my son is a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, so you know, for me to DVR it and hope that nobody spoils it for me, I guarantee yeah. you that the first thing he would do would you know kind of spoil and go ha 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 the Niners All right. won. So I have qu- questions, you know. rapid fire questions. Uh, are, how confident are you that the fi- the Eagles are going to advance to the Super Bowl? Well, after last week, and very. Okay. Uh, in this season, how many games remain in this basketball season for your kid? So we have another three tournaments. Um, and mind you, they won the tournament in Milwaukee this last weekend, so they're, they're feeling high and mighty. Yeah. Um, my, my wife has already given me a hall pass, and the head coach told me, hey, if you're feeling sick, I understand. Oh, um, man. All right, here's what I want to do, Jason. I, I want to, if you don't mind... I want to hold over and let the listeners help you answer this question. Do you mind? I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Jason in Portland on hold. He doesn't have to hold. He can just listen if he wants to. But the phone number is 503-417-7575. If Jason continues to hold, if callers have questions for Jason, they can ask them. I know where I am leaning. I don't want to say it, though, and influence other people. 503-417-7575. Help him out. His wife has given him a hall pass to uh, go watch the Eagles. The other coaches said it's okay. But should Jason blow off his kid's game to watch the NFC title game? You vote next. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. We're solving problems. We're keeping families together on this show. Jason is called in. He has a conundrum. It's really a dilemma because there's no great outcome. He's got to uh, coach. He's an assistant coach on his son's youth basketball team. They happen to be playing a tournament on Sunday that would overlap with the NFC Championship game. His wife has said, hey, it's okay, you have a pass to miss the game. The uh, head coach has said you can miss the game. Help him out. And if you have questions for Jason, I'm gonna punch him up here real quick. Jason, you still there? I'm still here. All right, if they have questions for you, I'm gonna keep you on standby to bring you on and answer the question, okay? All right. My biggest thing is, John, is I wonder if this will be a scar, you know, that my son will think about 10, 15, yeah. 20 years down the line. That's this is this yeah. is the issue. But well, yeah. Will the I, Eagles will the Eagles ever go back to the NFC Championship game? Like I told my son, he's a big Cowboys fan. It's been 27 years since they've been in, you know, even into the Super Bowl, let alone to the the uh, championship game, NFC Championship game. So this is what. This is the problem. I, I might have some resentment towards him if 30 years down the line the Eagles mm. never get back to this point. You know, yeah. this, is, this is some serious problems. This is a family issue here. I definitely have my vote. I'm not going to share it yet. Anna, do you have your vote? Yes. You do as well. Let's see what the listeners say. Let's go to Beaverton first. Devin is in Beaverton. Devin, what do you think Jason should do with this NFC Championship game and his kids' youth game? Uh, I got a couple clarifying questions first, John. Okay. Uh, Jason, is your kid a starter? Okay, stand by. Let me let me pull him up. Jason, uh, is your kid a starter on this team? He's the starting point guard. Okay, Devin, you got another question? 
No, no, that solves it all. Um, Jason, here's what I'd say. Uh, I wouldn't go to the game. If you do, I'd flip the rep of 20 and have them give you two quick tees. <laughs> <laughs> I watch the Eagles, and as a Seahawks fan, go Eagles. <laughs> Devin in Beaverton. Get get yourself thrown out of the game is what he says. Have you, have you received a technical foul yet this season? Can I hop in real quick not here? Not, yeah, yes, Stephen, go ahead. Nothing. Jason, did you say how old your kid was? He's a 12-year-old, 12 12 seventh grade. Okay, that, that goes by my decision. Thank you. Okay, all right. I love how everybody's got their weird criteria. How tall is your kid? Oh, I, that makes my mind up. Is he a starter? Is he a starter? Josh is in Vancouver. Josh, uh, you're on. Help Jason out. I don't even know if I can help anybody out here after that last caller, man. I mean, he pretty much solved the, the enigma with, like, the greatest response of all time. But seriously, Jason, here's, here's what I would say. Like, I would just sit down and have a conversation with your son. Like, I would legitimately just say, you know, hey, I, I have a little bit of a dilemma here. You know, here's the feelings that I have about it, and I would ask him. I, I can tell you I have uh, 15-year-old twin daughters that play competitive soccer. Uh, they're super involved in their high school sports and their club sports. I've never missed an activity for my kids except for the, for the first time this year, which was they took a basketball tournament in uh, the Tartanian Classic, the high school basketball tournament in Vegas. My wife and I opted not to go. We sat down, we talked to our daughters about it, and they just were like, you know, you know, we appreciate all the support you've given us, but, the, you know, we're going to be down there. It's going to be really busy. We're not going to see much of each other. We would be good if you guys didn't want to come. Um, so I, I would just have an honest conversation with your kid, and, you know, maybe your kid would be understanding, although as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I don't know how much reason is there with your kid, but, you know, I ain't no judgment. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I would I would really just have it as a family conversation, and not even family, but just with him. You you might be surprised on how he might feel about it. So that's that's my opinion. Okay, hey, appreciate that, Jason. Have you had that talk with your kid? You know, we jokingly talked about it last night over dinner, and um, you know, his buddies have asked me if you know on the team if I was planning on being there. You know, they mm. they were also saying that they hoped that the Eagles lose, so because. Uh, you know, we have two or three games depending on how well they do on Sunday. So hmm. that's the other conundrum. I could drop them off and then go to a bar or whatnot in Salem and watch it. And then, you know, we got a game at 4 o'clock or 5.30. So that's the other problem. Like, I would like to watch it at my home um, so that I don't have any other um, outside sources messing with with the environment so that's the other issue then i okay can't make it okay to hold on because i'm in you know okay. in portland you like to have no distraction when you watch the eagles the eagles need to have the, the center stage right like if they go to the super bowl we have a super bowl party every year well the year that they won it all we didn't have a super bowl party because i don't want to be entertaining other people i just want to mm. focus on the game <laughs> Do you have ritual during the game? Like, do you believe if you don't have a certain shirt on or you're sitting in a certain position that the Eagles won't be able to function? No, no, I'm not that crazy. Doesn't not go that, that crazy. crazy. Okay, I'm just testing, no. testing, poking around the edges. Um, all right, I'm going to go to Michael in Eugene, who's listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Michael, help Jason out. Yeah, um, man, go, go coach your kid's game. 
uh, you know, yeah, he's in seventh grade. Uh, you show, show up for him. Um, you know, I understand I wanted to watch the Eagles, but the Eagles aren't going to show up for you. Um, so, uh, you know, look, turn off all the um, social media. Uh, you know, don't answer your phone. Don't look at text messages. Then hustle home, sit down, watch the game with your boy. Tell him not to ruin it for you because even if he knows, then he can razz you during the game, but you guys can watch it together. Um, but you, you don't get an opportunity to show up for your boy again. Uh, so show up and uh, uphold your commitment to coaching to the team. Coach the game, either for your boy. All right. Thank you, Michael in Eugene, weighing in with a vote. Uh, I think he does make a good point about, mm-hmm. you know, you sign on to coach a team, does it send a bad message if you don't right. show up for the game? Right. I mean, it's a conundrum. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm calling right. you. Cause, All right. Cause Just, everybody that I yeah. I want to go to Castle Rock. People in Castle Rock are known as wise. Justin's in Castle Rock. Justin? Bring some wisdom. Oh, I think you're giving me a little too much credit there, saying that I'm wise. <laughs> um, now, I, I have my mind all set, but Devin there in uh, Beaverton with the double technicals, that makes me <laughs> double think <this. laughs> Now, honestly, you signed on to coach the team. You're showing commitment to your family. You're only going to have this one time. Kids are great, especially being the coach. You sign, like I said, you signed on. You got a, that commitment. These kids are looking up to you. They're seeing where priorities are, and priorities are family and the kids. I love. There's no bigger sports fan than I, and uh, I would definitely go coach the basketball game. There's Justin in Castle Rock, where they grow timber, and that's not. You don't take that lightly. You need to be wise to grow timber. Are you just making that No. Up? I'm not making it up. They, they have trees. They got trees there. Castle Rock. Don, <laughs> Don's in Portland. Don, help us out. Go ahead. You're on with Jason, Jason in Portland. Uh, Jason, I'd have to echo what the last caller said. I, I'm actually a coach in the PIL. Had an opportunity to go to Hawaii, which I've never been, and do a Tiger cruise, which is to get on a military ship and come back. Um, and I would have gone except I had one golfer qualified for regionals. All the coaches in the PIL supported me, said, go, go do it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime target cruise. I couldn't do it because of the very same thing. You make a commitment when you decide to coach. All those kids, they're all looking up to you. As tough as it is, it's the right thing to do. Appreciate that. I mean, what a strong message that would be. Now, Jason, now, I think we're starting to see uh, – a pattern here in the calls. I think yeah. I, I think oh. everyone wants a win-win here. And and is it a possible win-win? Let me just ask you this: If you coach your kid's game, and you know, put on a T-shirt that says "Do not tell me the score of the Niners Eagles game," <laughs> would is it a win-win if you can get through the day without knowing who won, and get home at night and settle in and watch the game with your kid? It, is that a win-win in your mind, or is something still lost? Oh, no, absolutely. I think that that would ultimately, if I could know for a fact that uh, I could sit down at the end of the night and nobody tell me anything, uh, that's the way I would love to go. Um, but I know that just because my kid chose to be a, a Cowboys fan, and if he knew that the Eagles locked, he would just love to just, you know, 
just the, that little edge, that little tweak extra you. edge. Gonna tweak yeah. you on that. Well, <laughs> let's take a let's take a, a couple more here, and then uh, and then we'll uh, we'll get our our final answers. Keith's in Portland as well. Keith, you have some advice for Jason. Go ahead. I do. Thanks, John, for taking my call. Uh, Jason, my only advice to you is do not put entertainment before your family. Take care of your son. Take care of your coaching responsibilities. In the long run, it's going to show him his priorities. And uh, football, it's still going to be there, win or lose. Thank you. Thank you, Keith, in Portland. Stephen, you, you, you sounded pretty definitive when you got an answer on the kid's age. Um, what where do you, what advice do you have for Jason? Yeah, I like to be contrarian, but I can't even in this situation. Um, I do feel like Jason, you need to have a talk with your son first of all, and like bring it up to him very seriously. You said you were joking around about it. You need to tell him, be like, look, like you know, I love the Eagles. I would love for you if you find out to not tell me, and then I will coach your team because I think it's important at 12 years old. Like sports are becoming very important at that time, and I think that if you do bail on it, it does send a bad message for kids because there's nothing worse. Uh, you know, My wife was a high school basketball coach. Now she's a track coach. But like, there's nothing worse when a kid leaves midseason to go on a vacation or they just miss practice for no reason. Now, you know, if they're five, six years old, I think that's a little different. But when they're 12, sports are becoming more serious. So I do think that you need to have a conversation and say, look, like the Eagles are important, but you're important as well. So I'm going to coach the game. But if you find out who wins, please don't tell me because – I do love the Eagles as well. How about uh, you're more important than the Eagles? I don't. I don't want to say that's you're true, important. The Eagles are important too. Well, I mean like, that's the thing. <laughs> but if you say the Eagles are more important than you, then he won't tell you, right? Like hey, this yeah. is how important the Eagles are. I love yeah. them. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But you, I think you got to talk to him. If the Eagles were playing in this basketball tournament, you wouldn't miss it, would you? No, no. Well, this is the other problem, John, is that uh, we have a tournament on Super Bowl weekend. So what do you do if the Eagles make it to the Super Bowl? You root for the Niners this weekend is what you do. Uh, Anna, Anna, Anna has a vote here. Anna, go ahead. Uh, I'm not saying anything that others haven't already said. I, I appreciate the callers because there's a lot of noble people calling in. And my thing is just, you know, if you had a kid on the team, let's say it's not even your kid. Let's say there was a kid on the team who happens to also be a huge Eagles fan and says, hey, this game is really important to me. I can't play in this game because i got to watch the game. Like, you know, that's essentially the message that would be sent if you didn't go to the game that you were the assistant coach for, and that's not going to fly. So, Very unfortunately, it's a sacrifice you're going to have to make. But, darn, that's a hard one. I feel for you. But this this is a great opportunity. Like, I think there's a win-win. Uh, if I'm you, Jason, I'm going out, I'm getting a T-shirt printed up saying, I'm a giant Eagles fan. Please do not spoil the game for me. I'm going to wear that. You're going to wear that T-shirt on the bench. You can, you know, and if you want, put in some earplugs. You don't need to hear what's going on to coach. Like, you <laughs> You can pretty much how is he going to hear the double T? Block out, block out the world. But I, but I think it's a great message. Like I think he should actually tell the kids, look, this is really I'm really like conflicted. I'm a diehard Eagles fan. This is how important you guys are to me. Yeah, I'm here coaching this game. This is the most important game in the world to me. Yeah, and I'll tell you from experience. Like I know with our oldest daughter, she played volleyball, and I ended up in a couple of situations where I had to pick between going to a big college football game to cover it or going to her 12-year-old volleyball tournaments, 
I went to the 12-year-old volleyball tournaments, and I can tell you I remember great memories from those tournaments. I can't even tell you who was playing in the football game that I missed. Mm. And and I've done that a couple of times, and people have gone, you're missing that game? And I go, yeah. It, and, you know, looking back, I think I made the right call there. I don't have regrets about missing the game. Now, I'm not a fan of those teams. Peter Sampson, do you have a vote here? I, I do have a vote, and I would coach, and uh, I would record the game exactly like yeah. everyone's saying. And I can uh, I can sort of back this up with uh, the 2021 World Series. My Braves were in it, game six. I forgot. I had promised my kid I would take him to a movie that he was dying to see. Mm-hmm. I took him to the movie, and we ran back, and I caught the last two outs of my team clinching it. I missed the whole game. But he remembers that as a core memory that I made a promise to him, and I took mm-hmm. it, and, and he still brings it up because we park, park on the street, and we're running to the sidewalk and barging into the house so I could see my team. And so he got that message like, I love this, but I love you more. And yeah. uh, I did my best to get both. Aww. There you go. Jason, uh, I want to know what where are you leaning? Have you made a decision or have we helped you at all or have we just complicated matters? You, you know, you made it a little bit more difficult of a decision. I mean, our Christmas card, it was the wife and daughter and I in, in Eagles uh, attire, and my son was on the other end of the uh, couch with his Dallas Cowboys gear. And uh, so, you know, this is this is definitely making it much more of a, a tougher call, but it's pulling on the heartstrings. I mean, I do want, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm uh, um, helping them coach is that I want them to – I want to model uh, – a good role model and, and be um, that piece to all these young men. And, um, yeah, so that's why it's such a difficult decision. And I think most likely I will be leaning towards coaching and hopefully nobody will ruin it for me. I think you'd do that. And you, I think you, your kid's going to drop 30 in this game too, by the way. I think <laughs> Alex, I on tw- so. Alex on Twitter has pointed that out. Thank you to Alex. Look, I appreciate everybody who's called in. Like, I always say this is a community, man. That was like a community hall right there. Well, I just, I love the conversation because these are, you know, he's a great dad for coaching the team, but even the fact that this is a dilemma for him and all the other fathers that are chiming in and advocating for the message that it sends, like, it just is awesome. I just think it's a, there's a, there's a, there's a win. There's a big win buried in this thing. Yeah. That has nothing to do with the football game or the basketball game. Like it, him being on the bench with his team and showing them how important they are to him and his kid looking down, even though they joke about, hey, you Cowboys, Eagles, mm-hmm. his kid looking down and going, dad picked my team's game and and we have a bunch of tournaments and my dad still picked my team's game. Kid's never going to forget that. Well, isn't it about the commitment, right? Like if you make a commitment, too. You, you have to come follow through with it. And I think kids at a, that age – are so like looking forward to you know parental advice and what they do, and I think for him to be a coach and then say no, this is not as important as coaching. And even though you made the commitment all season long, like I, I think it's just a bad look. So I, I really feel like, especially in sports, it's going to teach you like for your job when you grow up and when you go to school later on. Like it's not just about sports, not about football or basketball. It's about your life going forward. Just you commit to something, you got to do it. We have we tell our kids all the time too. If you if you if you start something. You, you don't have to love it. You don't have to do it next season, but you're not dropping out in midseason. Oh, our third grader would have quit volleyball in nope. the second game if nope. it would have let her. And every, you know, and by the end of the year, we're like, hey, you got something out of that, and you know, we're just you start something, you finish it. Uh, great segment. I appreciate everybody who weighed in. The 
520 at 520 <laughs> coming up next. Does that mean Anna has to do 20 of them? 520 of them. <laughs> You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I absolutely love that last segment of radio. Thank you to all who uh, participated or tuned in. What made it good, Anna? You said uh, as we went to break, that was really good. Oh, it's just real. It's real, you know. Uh, people sharing, uh, you know. Obviously, I think these are things that people have experienced in some measure uh, themselves, and uh, I just think it's really inspiring to hear men call in and talk about like what what is the right thing to do as a dad. It's really cool. I love that it was also dads that were calling in saying, "Hey, here's." It was dad-on-dad dad advice there. <laughs> yeah. Even the guy in the wilderness with the wise man out in the wilderness there uh, who gave that great uh, bit of in insight. That was mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, it brings us to the five at 524. Anna, let's do it. The five at five. Number one. Anna, go ahead. What in the world happened with Usain Bolt and this Olympic legend who was missing 12.7 million dollars, 12.7 million dollars in an alleged fraud scheme. The FBI is now officially involved in this investigation. He lost that money from his bank account with the Jamaican private investment firm Stocks and Securities Limited. It's currently under, under surveillance now. He's actually one of more than 30 alleged victims affected. He's left with only $12,000 after opening this account in 2012, hadn't withdrawn or transferred any money since, and the account was intended to serve as a pension for the athlete and his parents. This story broke a while ago, but the fact that the FBI is involved now, and now that we have, we have uh, more information is interesting. Um, yeah, you go from $12 million to $12,000, I'm just glad Usain Bolt caught it. Like, you see a lot of athletes who this kind of fraud goes on and on and on, and nobody catches it forever, but uh, police are involved, and, I'm, you know, maybe it was the high-profile client list. Maybe it was the, the, the FBI and others just got looped into it, but, you know, you get an Olympic legend, and you get fraud, and suddenly you got headlines. Number two in the five at 520. Go ahead. NFL's trying to make the Pro Bowl games a little more interesting. Okay. They will be uh, having a new spin this year. No longer the full contact exhibition game, but they will have an expanded skills competition, a flag football tournament. They're saying the new format is just a trial run, but uh, the production company behind it has produced hit shows like American Ninja Warrior, Hell's Kitchen, and Trading Spaces. So they're trying to make Pro Bowl weekend a little more dynamic. Is this going to work? No, it's not. It, you can't do a football all-star game. They've tried it in different forms and fashions. They've tried putting it in Hawaii. They've tried having it, you know, in the week off between the Super Bowl. They've tried just have a skills competition. Invite the best players around. Make it a fan fest. Uh, do it in, you know, in the run-up to the Super Bowl. But I don't like them trying to get too clever with this thing just just do a normal skills competition call it good you don't need a weekend you don't need a bowl at all i don't want to see players 
half-assing, pretending to be in an all-star game. Have you seen some of the events, though, that they have? So they have, have, they have a dodgeball. Dogball no. game, lightning no. round, a longest drive like golf, no. precision no. passing, no. kick tac toe, kick tac toe, the gridiron gauntlet. No, it's not. It's stupid. Can I it's bet just, on it? Or you probably? <laughs> <laughs> I might be you in there. You're you're in now. Yeah. Um, no, it's dumb. If you can't have the game, have a punt, pass, and kick contest like they do in the fifth grade. Call it good. Everybody have a drink. It's a great weekend. It's a great Pro Bowl. So grumpy. I'm not grumpy. I don't want to see. I don't care if a football player can play. What is it? Tic Tac? Kick Tac Toe. I don't care. I don't care if they can do that. <laughs> it does nothing for the, me. You care about the longest drive golfing? No. It does nothing for me. Uh, give me a superstars competition. Give, make it an athletic competition that is like a legit like football applicable. Like, you know, have them do a combine. I don't care. Run the 40. Who runs the fastest? Okay, now everybody have a drink. It's a barbecue. This isn't this isn't an event. You can do it in baseball. It works. You can get away with it in basketball because they don't play defense anyway in the regular season. <laughs> but in football, you can't do two-hand touch Pro Bowl games and then try to go, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to do golf. I. What are they going to do, play checkers and darts next? No. Number three. A uh, big shakeup with the Cowboys. Jerry Jones made it clear that Mike McCarthy's job was safe after the playoff loss to the Niners, but that apparently doesn't apply to everyone on the coaching staff team. Made a major move today, parting ways with no less than six assistant coaches. Six. Cleaning house. Man. Well, tough time to be a Cowboys fan. <laughs> That's all you got to say No, about I just that. look. This is Jerry Jones. The, the answer for the Cowboys is the owner, Jerry Jones, needs to fire the general manager, Jerry Jones. You, you know, he's not good at it. This is what's holding the Cowboys back. Like it's, This is like the emperor has no clothes. There's a, there's a uh, Aesop would have a field day with Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys. Let's just say that. Like it's, the answer is obvious to the rest of us, but the one guy who's in position to make the decisions can't see that the problem is him. <laughs> He owns the team. He should fire the GM. That's also him. Number four. Steph Curry ejected from the Warriors game last night after his teammate Jordan Poole missed a shot late in the 122-120 victory over the Grizzlies. So there's not really much news here except I was entertained by the fact that all of Steph Curry's ejections have one thing in common. This was from SportsCenter. Game six of the 2016 NBA Finals. He was ejected after he threw his mouth guard. October 21st, 2017. Yeah, I remember that. Threw his mouth guard at a referee against the Grizzlies. And then last night, Wednesday, threw a mouth guard in the fourth quarter. So all three ejections have involved his, his mouth guard. Somebody needs to take that mouth guard away from him. You know what I mean? That's what you do. That's what you do with our kids. You know, quit throwing your pencil. You'd say it like twice, and they threw it again. You'd be like, no pencil. I don't even Steph understand. Steph Curry doesn't need a mouth guard. The mouth guard isn't even in his no, mouth he's half just the time. chewing on it. It's like a fidget spinner. <laughs> well, he needs his fidget spinner. <laughs> Number five in the five at five. Oh, Louisiana State University. They uh, made headlines in the football coaching market in 2021 when they signed former Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly to a 10-year, $95 million contract. 
and he did all right with that. But turns out he was overpaid by a million dollars discovered in a recent audit. Somebody in Baton Rouge messed up and forgot to stop transferring the money to his bank account instead of an LLC in his name. And now he's giving the money back. What would you do? He'd have to. He'd have to. Yeah. He'd have to, but boy. A million dollars? You have that much money that you don't notice that you're getting an extra million dollars. You saying bald over there is going, you know what? That I don't I wish I had that problem. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the five at kind of five. Coming, How am I doing? You're doing great. Uh coming up, we're going to the 49ers Eagles series. Dieter Kurtenbach of the San Jose Mercury News. He covers the Niners. He will be at the game in Philadelphia. He won't be coaching a youth basketball game. He'll be live. It's his job to be there. Uh, we'll talk to Dieter coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I remain, uh, I remain unsure if that Jason in Portland is actually going to skip the Eagles game. There's part of me that kind of thinks he was uh, waiting for us to give him permission to uh, skip his kid's game. I don't think you should do that. Go to the ki- go to the youth basketball game and tape the NFC championship game. A guy who will be in Philadelphia is our next guest. Dieter Kurtenbach is a columnist with the San Jose Mercury News, does a fantastic job, has joined us uh, frequently on this show, and he's kind enough to give us his time. Uh, Dieter, help us out, man. Um, Christian McCaffrey, uh, you know, is he is he hampered here? Is is he going to be questionable? Is is this a question in your mind, or is this just the Niners giving him a rest? It sounds like it's the Niners giving him a rest, but there should be some concern. Uh, Christian McCaffrey talked to the media today, he said there's a 0% chance that he won't play on Sunday. That's a nice thing to hear. Uh, he didn't give a percentage as to what he'll be in that game when he plays. So, there, yeah, there's some concerns there. Uh, I think adding to the complexity is the fact that Elijah Mitchell, who shares carries with him and was wildly impressive, I thought, in the second half of the game against the Cowboys, getting 13 carries in the second half with, uh, with the CMC going in and out of the game with that calf injury. He was on the injury report today as well. So the Niners are going to have an interesting injury report tomorrow. I'd expect both of them to play, but any sort of hampering is a really big deal against a Philadelphia team that is unquestionably the stiffest competition this 49ers squad has played this year, befitting of an NFC championship game. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that matchup. As you see it, what are the keys for the Niners? Uh, let's talk about the Niners' offense against Philadelphia's mm-hmm. defense. I mean, legitimately, it works out pretty well for the 49ers offense. I think that if the 49ers offense wants to show up to this game, they'll have an opportunity to put some serious points on the board. Philadelphia is an outstanding football team. I put the tape on of them, and I'm really, really impressed. I get to watch the Niners every week. They're a really, really good team. Philadelphia is just as good, if not a little bit better. But they do have a weakness. Every team does. And Philadelphia's weakness, I think, is pretty glaring. It's against the run. They don't stop it. They have a lot of dudes who you would think would stop it. I think that they're a sound team. They just don't tackle all that well. 
and they don't stay they, – they, they can't stop the run, full stop. And that's what the Niners are going to want to do early and often. It's a Kyle Shanahan offense. They're going to run the ball. Now, if Christian McCaffrey and Elijah Mitchell are on 100%, that could be, again, a bit of a concern. But I think that if the Niners are able to control the ground a little bit, play the Eagles sort of game, which is you know limited possessions, both teams are going to run it a bunch, the Niners could very well come out on top on that. If they can't run the ball, though, they don't stand a chance. And if they fall behind early, they don't stand much of a chance. The Eagles are a machine. And as we saw last week against the Giants team, that isn't on the 49ers level, but it's still pretty darn good. It was a playoff game after all. Uh, When the Eagles get ahead, they don't relent. It allows their defense to just go after the quarterback. They had 15 more sacks than any other team in the NFL this year. They can control the ball when they have it on offense. They are just, they're a boa constrictor. They will strangle you to death if you give them any points to start the game. You can't spot them a thing. So the Niners are going to have to come out, and they can't ease into the run game at all. They're going to have to be strong early. They're going to have to get yards early. They're going to have to establish that they're there to tango. And if that's the case, then they can very much win the game. If they fall behind early, they're done. It's, it's over. It's kaput. When when we talk about, you know, Philadelphia's offense, you know, I, I, I look at the 49ers front four. They're going to have to get a big game out of Bosa and Armstead and – and Jalen Hurts' uh, ability to run the football and hurt you uh, with not a planned run, or uh, you know, just uh, you know, him right. scrambling, becomes a factor. How big of how much has Kyle Shanahan and, and the 49ers talked about that this week? They're petrified, mainly because the media has been mentioning it a lot and they've been getting direct questions about it. But this has been a long time bugaboo. We're talking five years for the 49ers, their defense has really struggled against teams that have a quarterback that can create second-chance opportunities, or in the case of Jalen Hurts, third- and fourth-chance opportunities. They don't do well with running quarterbacks. Jared Stidham, who is not a running quarterback, gave them fits when the 49ers played the Raiders because he just got out of the pocket. He was able to run naked bootlegs, and the Raiders put up major points against a 49ers defense that at the time was the unquestioned top defense in the NFL, and I think it became a bit murkier as to if they were that. Patrick Mahomes tore him up earlier this year in the fourth quarter because he's Patrick Mahomes. That's what he does. He makes third and fourth chances happen. Uh, It's a big deal with Jalen Hurts. Now, does he have the improvisational skills in the passing game? That's to be determined, but he is a brilliant athlete. They want to keep the ball on the ground. He is an outstanding runner of the football and that triple option is what I call that they run, the RPO, with A.J. Brown as the only receiver going out on a route. That is as awesome a play as exists in the NFL because it has three deadly options. You hand it off, that means that Jalen Hurts saw something at the line of scrimmage that it's going to be a big run because he has a pretty good read on that. He's been running the RPO his whole life. He can keep it himself. That's not a good thing for any defense because typically they don't have a, a spy on a running quarterback in this modern era where you have to drop back so many guys into pass coverage. And uh, and then ultimately it's A.J. Brown. And if you get A.J. Brown one-on-one, and that's what ultimately that RPO does, it forces defenses to play man-to-man defense. If you get A.J. Brown one-on-one, and they're not just calling everything the referee crew, you're not beating them. You, you, just, you can't put a guy big enough, strong enough, and fast enough to stop A.J. Brown. So – that's the one play they will run until the 49ers overload and stop it, and then they'll run another play to the other side with Devontae Smith. I mean, it's an absolutely awesome offense. And the Niners, if they are truly the number one defense in the NFL, like the stats say they are and like they believe they are, they'll find a way to slow it down. But no one stops it. No one stops something this awesome. 
the Niners have been to Super Bowls with Colin Kaepernick and Jimmy Garoppolo, and, you know, they used Alex Smith to get deep into the playoffs, and now they have Brock Purdy at quarterback. Um, I watched him in the divisional round against the Cowboys. I didn't think he was great. Was that his bad game, or is there some concern as well with a rookie quarterback in an NFC title game that maybe maybe the game caves in on him? I don't think those concerns exist in Santa Clara where the 49ers train and play. Uh, I didn't pick up those concerns watching back the All-22 film at all. I thought that he made really sound decisions. And I think that Dan Quinn, the Cowboys defensive coordinator, uh, I know that he agreed to come back to the Cowboys today. I, he should have gotten the job, a head coaching job, just based off of that film. What the Cowboys were doing was basically mixing two defenses together, and everyone seemed absolutely locked in on their assignment. He did a marvelous job, uh, and I'm sure Philadelphia is all over that game film, seeing if they can emulate it this week. I thought Purdy made really strong decisions. I, I thought even the two sacks that he had in the game, uh, I think a lot of people would look at it and don't really see the safeties on TV and all that, and you would think, oh, that's, that's not good. But when you know the play that they're trying to run, the sack is actually the smart play on how it was you know, how the play was broken up by Dallas's defense. Uh, it wasn't a great game. I'm not trying to you know, build up Brock Purdy like he was some sort of Superman there, Tom Brady 2.0, but I think he made really smart decisions throughout the game. And there was a couple of bad throws, but they didn't burn him. And that's ultimately what the 49ers need. We saw this with Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, they just don't need him to turn over the ball. If you don't turn over the ball, the 49ers have a shot because they have so much talent on defense. They're ball hawking in, in every facet of the game. And then on offense, they have playmakers galore. If they're healthy, we'll find out. So they just need Brock Purdy to just get the ball into the hands of the really good guys and get the heck up out of the way. That's what he's been able to do. And I think that he's actually shown a lot more than that. Jimmy Garoppolo in prior playoffs has basically been told, you're not allowed to do anything but hand the ball off. Kyle Shanahan has come out in these first two playoff games and basically just said, Brock, we're about to rip it. We're about to throw it all over the field to the point where they had to pare it back a little bit against the Dallas Cowboys because their defense was so good. I think Kyle has an immense amount of trust in him. I think that Brock has proven that trust to be uh, – it validated that trust in a wide way, and I wouldn't be shocked at all if Brock Purdy had a really, really good game against Philadelphia because if that run game is going, it's going to open up a whole bunch of opportunities in the pass game. That's what the Kyle Shanahan offense does, and – I just think I don't know if I've seen anyone operate the Shanahan offense in San Francisco as well as Purdy, and that includes Garoppolo, who had some really good stretches of play during his time as the Niners starter. We're talking to Dieter Kurtenbach, sports columnist, uh, Bay Area News Group, uh, San Jose Mercury News. Um, you know, you bring up something with Brock Purdy. Let's let's look in the future of the 49ers organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, his success this year gives me some hope that the Niners uh, can play with him or Trey Lance and have a rookie contract mm-hmm. in that quarterback position, which is a huge advantage in the NFL right now. It, has Brock Purdy done enough to uh, to suggest that it's, it's he and Trey Lance next season? Absolutely. I think that fiscally speaking, it was always going to be him and Trey Lance. They've just inverted the roles now. Um, you know, they, they handed the team off to Trey Lance, and the expectation was that they needed to do that so that they could maybe get something more out of the quarterback position than Jimmy Garoppolo was giving them. But really it was to get more or less the same as what Jimmy Garoppolo was giving them. On top of that, getting a whole bunch of salary cap space. 
Uh, Brock Purdy was brought in, last pick of the draft. He's the cheapest dude they could get. I think if Brock Purdy had been an unrestricted free agent, hadn't been drafted, he would have made more money as a pro than he makes right now. He got the last spot on the salary list that the NFL gives out for the draft. So he is cheap. He won't make a million dollars a year until his final year of his four-year contract. He is a dirt cheap. And it doesn't matter if it's him or if Lance, it will be Purdy. Um, the Niners are going to spend about $10 million total on two quarterbacks next year. As we saw this year, it's vital to have a good backup quarterback. In the case of the Niners, two good backup quarterbacks. And uh, I think the Niners are going to be sitting pretty. Salary cap's looking like it's going to be around $225 million. They're going to be spending $10 million on a quarterback when Dak Prescott's going to get paid 50 and Deshaun Watson's going to get paid 50 I mean, obviously Patrick Mahomes is getting paid 50, but Patrick Mahomes earns 50. Uh, these other guys who I can't, I can't say honestly are that much better than Brock Purdy are going to get be paid five times as much. The flexibility that the Niners have to keep the guys on their team around, a tough thing for a really good team to do, and to maybe even add guys to this team that make some serious money because of that quarterback situation, it, 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 it's incredible. It might even be unprecedented. I haven't gone deep enough into it to see if that's something that's happened before, but the Niners are really sitting pretty. I think it's going to be Purdy. I know he's going to be cheap, and I think that the Niners are going to be set up for success year after year uh, so long as these guys stay cheap because he's, he's, yeah. he's been the real deal. I know the outside perception is that he's been good. I, I think that the inside, you know, what I'm hearing is that he's been even better than what people see on TV. Yeah, and when we look at three of the four teams that are left playing, you've got guy quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks, who are not only good and have played well, but they are on low contracts. Like Jalen Hurts is, mm-hmm. you know, he, his his total contract is six million dollars, and you know Joe Burrow is going to get a big extension, you know, in his next deal. But Joe Burrow and Brock Purdy and Jalen Hurts are allowing their teams to have depth and be better on, on defense and in other positions. Uh, we're talking to Dieter Kurtenbach, San Jose Mercury News. Dieter, before I cut you loose, all right, you've talked about the Niners, the Eagles, the matchups, whatever. What's your gut say on this game? Where are you leaning if you have to make a pick? I think that I would, I would lean towards home field advantage. I don't see very much between these teams. Uh, ultimately, I didn't love a lot of what I saw from the Niners last week, particularly on defense. I, I thought Dallas... Uh, gave them too much of a game, uh, all things considered. Uh, I, I thought that the run game for the Niners was also a, a, a little lame. Uh, it was physical, and that's impressive, but it wasn't the, it wasn't it wasn't the punch that I expected, even against that good Dallas defense, which flies around the field. I just look at Philadelphia; they're coming in red hot. Uh, they're coming in relatively rested. I, I think that they're an absolute juggernaut. I think that if Hurts even plays his C plus B minus game that they'll be able to win this one. Maybe it'll be close, but I, I think it could be one hell of a game, but I, I have to lean towards Philadelphia when we're talking about probabilities. Home field advantage matters, and I think that Philly's a slightly better team on top of all of that. Gator Curtinbox, San Jose Mercury News. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you giving us time. Anytime, Jeff. Talk soon. There he is. He's picking the Eagles. I'm leaning Niners, but I'm biased. You know, I'm looking at this game going San Francisco's defense, Philadelphia's offense. I see a very close game. I agree with him. I don't think there's a big difference between the two teams. The The thing that worries me from the 49ers standpoint is the Dallas game was a tug of war. It was, you know, a very physical game. Uh, you saw one player go out, you know, a Dallas player go out with a broken leg. You, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a tug of war. 
Uh, and, you know, the Eagles getting the bye in the first round and then playing the Giants didn't look like they had to effort much. So I just wonder about a team that got in a tough game with Seattle in the wild card round, got into a tug-of-war with the Dallas Cowboys in the divisional round. Do they have one more in them? And, oh, by the way, you're going on the road to Philadelphia to do it. That's what concerns me from the 49ers' standpoint. From the Eagles' standpoint, it's pretty simple. It's the 49ers' defense. Can they solve the 49ers' defense? Because that's what scares me if I'm an Eagles fan. I look at the Niners. I look at Bosa. I look at Armstead. I, the linebackers are great. I, and I go, okay, this is the biggest test of the season for, for an offense that played really well in stretches but then saw Jalen Hurts go out and not the same. So can Hurts stay healthy in this game? And can you overcome a defense that is the number one defense in the NFL? We'll talk more about it coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up top of the hour right here on 750 The Game. Peter, what are you going to do with the Pulse right out of the gates? Yeah, we're going to talk uh, NBA All-Star selections, you know, with the uh, Damian, Damian Lillard's 60-point outburst and looking at his numbers, which are right in line with his career high. There's a good chance not going to be an All-Star this year. It's kind of mm. silly, but it's possible. Well, uh, I think it's – would you – would you take Lillard in an all-star game? Let's be real here. Like, provincial Blazer fans would love to see him in an all-star game and love to take him as the first overall pick. But let's say we're playing an all-star game, and you have every NBA player in the league lined up like it's the third grade, and you're going to pick a player. Who's your number one pick on your all-star team? Uh, number one pick is probably going to be Giannis for me. Maybe Jokic. You have to pick one or the other. Who are you picking? <laughs> I'm going to take Giannis. Okay. Steven? Uh, yeah, Giannis. Giannis number one. I'll take the Joker. I don't know that in an all-star game. Maybe uh, Giannis be more fun. Who would be more fun to hang out with? Giannis, without a doubt. I don't know, yeah. though. Jokic, Jokic is fun, too, though. Jokic has those brothers that look like yeah. they murder people. <laughs> Did you see his post-game interview yesterday? <laughs> He's got his brothers who murder people. I don't know. I think Jokic <laughs> might be fun, too. Yeah, Dinner yeah. party? Yeah, you, you're, nobody's gonna mess with you with the brothers. You put you put his brothers right behind the bench. Exactly. And, and nobody, they were at they were at that Blazers Nuggets playoff series, and they were barking at the officials. And I was like, ah, yeah, those guys look a little dangerous over there. Uh, all right, leave it here for Peter Sampson and the Pulse. He's coming up tomorrow. Dennis Erickson, legendary college football coach, uh, former Seahawks and Niners coach, Dennis Erickson former Oregon State coach, of course, uh, former University of Miami coach. He'll be with us at 4 o'clock tomorrow on the Bald Face Truth. I want you there for it. Grab a podcast of the show. I thought the uh, the great question from Jason in Portland, who was having the uh, dilemma between the Eagles game and coaching his youth team with his son on the game, you know, in the team, that was a great discussion. I hope he uh, coaches his kids' game. Uh, and uh, leave it here. Peter Sampson and the Pulse is coming up. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.